0: Welcome to the season one finale of Second Chance Cinema called The Re-Evaluation of Michael Bay, or Michael Bay Worthy of Study. This episode was recorded during the COVID-19 shutdown in 2020. We recorded this episode over Skype, which wasn't perfect, but it worked. Since then, we have found the amazing podcast recording program of ZenCaster.com, which allowed us to record remotely for season two and bring on our friends as guests from other locations. This episode is divided into three parts for your listening pleasure. It has special guest stars with Rudy and Jeremy, their first time on the podcast. There's cursing. And MC and I might spoil a couple of Bay's movie endings, but it's all in good fun as we celebrate the one, the only, Michael Bay. Enjoy the show.
1: I'm going to ask you this once. Where is Optimus Prime? He has an imagination
2: the likes of which I've never I've never seen, and he knows how to do it and what's going to keep you
3: always on on edge. My first day of work was things exploding. And- It was terrifying. With Michael, he makes everything as realistic as possible around you, so you don't feel that ridiculous when you're out there, you know, like having an argument with a robot that's not there. You know you're getting one take at it, too, and they've been setting this thing up for weeks, and then you show up, and it's like you can't flinch, you can't duck, and and I mean, you talk about the heat that that kind of thing generates, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, there was a commercial that Michael made a long time ago where he
2: says, I'm Michael Bay and I love And Isaac's, like exploding things around his house. Hmm,
4: genius. genius. Hi, I'm Michael Bay, director of Hollywood hits such as Transformers. And I demand
5: things to be awesome. Awesome, awesome. pussycat.
3: Awesome barbecue. Awesome pool.
5: Yeah, he has a skill for getting things blown up. Uh... But it all seems to be part of the deal,
6: you know? It's supposed to be that. There were a couple of times when I thought, boy, that was a little close. But I also thought, because I was playing the character, I thought, uh, well, he's been in combat before. He's not a, he's not a sissy.
7: You have to say he is a genius. He's so unique. He's so different with the others. And he's really good at all this kind of movie.
8: He is the best.
3: What I felt was like, why can't we just put this in with a computer later? Why do we have to actually run alongside this massive explosion? But you know, then you see it in slow motion on the 3D camera, just like,
7: I get it. And you know what the word for that is? Awesome? Bingo. Definition of genius A person who is exceptionally Intelligent or creative Either generally or in some particular Respect Another definition Someone having exceptional intellectual Or creative power or other natural ability Genius is an exceptional Talent or skill Something above and beyond The norm Hmm. Welcome to this episode (laughs) of Second Chance Cinema Which is a bit of a departure From our regular format in which we try to give love to some of the movies we feel deserve it, but haven't quite gotten it. And today we are going to explore a concept that we came across and decided we wanted to try out where not a movie will be under scrutiny, but a director. And in this case, a director who is very divisive. That's probably the one word I would ascribe to him, meaning that you either love him or you hate him. I don't know that there's a ton of middle ground, but we can get into that. Michael Bay.
0: I feel like there's not like if you're looking at the spectrum. I feel like there's love, there's like, and then there's hate. You know, like there's not like, nah. I could, you know, I could kind of do without them. Like it's it's one, two, or ten. <laughs> like so that's
7: fair. And I think Michael Bay pretty much his films bring out those reactions in people.
0: Right, and unjustifiably too. I would say.
7: Well, unjustifiably. Unjustifiably, what we're hoping to talk about is the negative, I think, because I would argue, based on the definitions I just read, that Michael Bay's a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would argue that the critics of his work are like people who go into Taco Bell and then complain about how bad the cheeseburger is. So I think what we're talking about here is partially taste, not taste of tacos but taste in films and taste in the cinematic experience and then also kind of what the job of a critic really is
0: right these are food critics going into a mom and pop shop and wondering why it's not cool oh, there's a reason why this doesn't have a michelin star rating and it's like yeah it's not because of their quality it's because they don't give a shit about your michelin star rating so i i'm, I'm
7: kind of curious to see how we're going to attack this there's how many 14 14 movies that michael bay has exclusively directed is, mm-hmm. is going to be talking about. There are plenty other where he's been credited in different capacities as either a producer or executive producer. And then there are also some music videos that he directed early in his career that you might not know that surprised me um, when I read them, but also kind of definitely definitely representative of you know Michael Bay's style and sort of just even speak to like an evolution almost that goes from then until now.
0: I think I think it helps the, the music video experience. Like I think like the directors that go through and get kind of like music videos themselves are supposed to be short stories you know you got about four minutes to pitch the song right visually And most of the time you have like the low budget music videos that are like 10 grand that are just singers with the mic and maybe there's a little dancing in the background or whatnot. and then you have the epics which Michael Bay tackled with his like meatloaf videos of like I do anything for love but I won't do that mm-hmm. where you have a bigger budget and you got about seven minutes and if you're able to compact all that like that is and make it memorable like i feel like everybody remembers oh yeah if you see it once it's in there you know it's ingrained yeah and so i think he did a lot of practice with that
7: correct me if i'm wrong and i know you're too humble to bring it up but did you not write a music video yeah, I've written several. I've written about thirty. Oh, really? That many? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. R- so, you have, so you have a, um, you know, kind of an intimate knowledge of of at least that sort of media, and then yeah. you obviously written screenplays and stuff too so maybe maybe this is a good place to jump in well first I wanted to ask about are we going to try to do poetry here because we don't really have a trailer to play which is usually when we do our poetry
0: right I didn't know if we were going to play a trailer for every movie or I think we got to have like one poetry so we got to like pick one movie that we would show the trailer for okay maybe maybe we can maybe the rock let's play the trailer at the
7: end of this episode okay and we'll write our poem uh, our poetry as as
0: an ode to what we've discussed. How about that? Gotcha. Okay. So we just need to remember to do that. Speaking of remembering to do things, and this is going to be completely off base, but it's been forever since we've given them a shout out, and they gave us a shout out about a year ago. Vintage Baseball Podcast. Uh, we yeah. should. We should give them a shout out. So we thank everybody for coming along and listening to the podcast before we get into the the genius that is Michael Bay. Podcasting, there's about, I think, like 80,000 podcasts out there. We are delighted that you chose ours for your listening pleasure for this next hour or so. And we want to say that if you like our podcast, we have a friend that has one. It's the Vintage Baseball Podcast. And there's a little, there's a sect out there that nobody really knows about of vintage baseball where they play by all the rules set back in the the golden days. Gloveless, you know, they're catching with their bare hands. They're playing out in fields that have like trees and creeks running through them. And if you go out and see their games, they will teach you the history. And it's just it seems like a great group of guys. And they get together and record a podcast. And so if you want to know the history of everything of vintage baseball, see where it's playing in your area, I would suggest checking it out. And I guess his name is Swamp Swamp Fox Frias is his podcasting name so if you (laughs) stumble upon that I'm hoping to get them on our podcast at some point. All right. So to start, why don't, do you have the list of Michael Bay's films in front of you? I have the list of films, music
7: videos, a couple of commercials that I really liked. <laughs> okay. Let's just run down the list. No commentary. Just so everybody knows what we're working with. Can you do it chronologically? Is it chronological?
0: Uh, yeah, I can. I mean, there's so many music videos I'll go through. I'll say the ones that probably, you know, okay. Fair. Greg, Greg Allman. I'll be holding on. Donnie Osman, sacred emotion. Uh, Uh, the neville brothers bird on a wire sticks love is a the ritual another donny osmond which is my love is a fire chicago hearts in trouble vanilla ice i love you um sticks show me the way louie louie sitting in the lap of the luxury donny osmond sure looking young mc that's the way love goes Tina Turner, Nutbush City Limits. The I never know how to say this. The Divinals, I Touch Myself. Tina Turner, Love Thing, Wilson Phillips, You Won't See Me Cry, Lionel Richie, Do It To Me, and then the meatloafs of I Do Anything For Love, But I Won't Do That, Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, and objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. And then after, like, then he starts getting into the movies, but he comes back and he'll direct music videos for artists for his soundtrack. So he did Faith Hills, There You'll Be, Diana King's Shy Guy, and Aerosmith's Falling in Love is Hard on the Knees. So that's the music videos.
7: Alright, and then is co- are commercials after that, or does he get ready to movies?
0: Well, he starts in commercials. So commercials and music videos kind of go hand in hand, and through the Institute, he directed and produced spots for, like, Victoria's Secret, Lexus, Budweiser, Reebok, Mercedes-Benz, Nike. But I think, like, his most famous commercial would be the uh, Aaron Burr's Got Milk, that stars the guy from Twister.
8: And that was the Vienna Wood Dancing D, one of my all-time favorites. And now, let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there.
9: Mm-hmm.
4: Hello, for $10,000, who shot...
9: <laughs> Excuse me?
3: Oh, hold on, let me I'm afraid your time is almost up. I'm sorry.
8: I'm sorry, maybe next time.
7: Got milk? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, the one where he's got, he. what was it, like a radio call-in contest? Yeah. And- got peanut butter in his mouth and he can't say the
0: answer and, the answer and he's is- like a, he's an expert like he's got the bullet he's got like the paintings he's got the gun like he, that commercial was the moment of his life that was like eighth grade i feel like seventh
7: or eighth grade if you haven't seen that commercial look it up look up um aaron burr milk commercial it's a good
0: commercial and, and it, uh, like- uh, i couldn't get it out of my head when i went to see hamilton the musical like i was like did this commercial inspire <laughs>
7: Okay, so then we get into the movies so
0: start yep. with these all right the movies starting in 1995 with bad boys bad boys the rock armageddon pearl harbor bad boys 2 the island transformers 1 transformers revenge of the fallen transformers dark of the moon pain and gain in 2013 in 2014 transformers age of extinction then 2016 was 13 hours the secret soldiers of benghazi 2017 transformers the last night and 2019 19 was six underground okay
7: so and six underground for those of you who don't know is a netflix exclusive movie with ryan reynolds and i feel like there was somebody else big name The little franco De franco oh yeah yeah so that was 14 movies and i looked up a total of almost eight billion dollars gross worldwide he is the my-
0: third highest grossing director James of all time and then spielberg he beats cameron cameron is fourth so who was number one and two Spielberg and then Peter Jackson. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it goes Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, Michael Bay, James Cameron, Yates, uh, who did like the Harry Potters, Christopher Nolan, then Zemeckis. Okay. So here's something I noticed right off the bat. Was Peter
7: Jackson number one? Two. Two? Okay. So Spielberg's number one and all of, uh, or the majority of Spielberg's movies, I feel like that I can recall at the moment, aren't based off of some universally revered, long-time pre existing property like Lord of the Ring. Correct. So Peter Jackson... The Harry Potter director, and there was another one, I think, on that list that you mentioned. All sort of, I don't want to say piggybacked on the popularity of their franchises, but I don't know that other than Transformers, which definitely accounts for a lot of Michael Bay's box office money, I can't think of another franchise that he's sort of, you know, made a name for. Right. He was a producer on Ninja Turtles, both of those, I think. But other
0: than that, I guess what I'm saying is that the majority of his movies are original. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? I would say that's fair to say he's getting a lot of money through like the transformers and the i guess the tmt he gets a lot because he's such a visual director the second biggest market after united states is china and so if you do a lot of visual visualizations in your films you're gonna you're gonna hit it big over in the asian markets right which i mean i don't
7: think he's ever been shy about like yeah that's pretty much why I do what I do. I mean, the great the whole- thing
0: about him and probably what makes him so divisive is the fact that he is not, sh- you know, like he is not shy, he's not he's I guess apparently a very humble man in real life, like he doesn't get jokes or anything like that, but he goes, "No, one of his quotes that I wrote down was, "I make movies for teenage boys like yeah <laughs> and I, i've heard that before too but i'm curious why is he humble because he doesn't get jokes i mean once we get down like i told you last night i was like i got like 30 pages of notes right but a lot of the reasons why people hate him is because well high art critics hate him because he makes popcorn movies for teenage boys which he's you know he's not shy of admitting right. and the second thing is it's, he, he has a horrible reputation on set as a director and okay. if you like get into like what people say about him on set and then you know offset in restaurants he is a very hard director but in the same instance that's almost a part that he's playing based off of like then at restaurants i think martin Lawrence said he's the guy that will laugh at a joke and then ask you after why it was funny (laughs) okay so now riddle me this Stanley Kubrick,
10: mm-hmm.
7: one of the great directors, right? Mm-hmm. Was he not notoriously an asshole on set? Probably. I mean, I'm asking because I I've, I know I've read stories about The Shining where he put Shelley Duvall through like days of hell to get a specific shot, you know, just very, very methodical to the point of bordering on abusive stories. Right. Yet he's regarded as this high art revolutionary director, whereas Michael Bay, people just sort of dismiss it as him being a
0: dick. Right. You said it right in your thing that, you know, Stanley Kubrick is regarded as a high art <laughs> director. you know, like, I feel like they're saying, like, if you're going to be a dick, make sure that you appease the critics. And it's like, so, no, no,
7: no. So here's the question then. What's the difference between Stanley Kubrick's art and directors of that ilk and Michael Bay's art? Because art, of course, I mean, we could, I- I'm sure there are podcasts about the subjectivity of art. Art to one person can be a pretty picture that's very colorful. Art to another person can be, you know, single colored sculpture or whatever. I would argue with anyone until I won that what Michael Bay does is absolutely 100% art.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I would say like when I was talking to Swamp Box Frias about Michael Bay, we came up with that he's the Nickelback of directors, you know, based off what you were just saying right there, I would say he's the Andy Warhol of directors. Like people are going to shit on him because he's painting a tomato can, but he paints that tomato can really well. You know, like I would put up an Andy Warhol on my wall before I put up a Monet like
7: sure (laughs) that's fair and i mean that's that's again why i guess we're almost sort of we're 20 minutes into this podcast ish and i think we're we're just as much like exploring why people hate him as trying to defend why we think he's awesome
0: and that's what when i approached this when i approached my research last night i was like figure out when the when the tide turned you know because there's always a point where like people go and now i hate him you know because when nickelback first came out nobody hated nickelback like it wasn't until they were everywhere that people started being like no 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 we're gonna we're gonna choose to hate this group now and with michael bay yeah, it push. was it's like around the armageddon pearl harbor area okay and then also the stories that were coming out weren't necessarily gelling and so as we start going through the movies I'll be able to show why his onset demeanor and the rumors that started circulating about him just don't make sense. We'll don't turn. stick. Is this gonna turn into like a true crime forensic podcast about <laughs> Michael Bay by the end? I feel like one, if if people are gonna dive in with us and you're gonna listen throughout the whole thing, I feel like as long as your mind is open, we are going to give you reasons why you should give Michael Bay a second chance for the movie that we pitched all 14 movies are not gems and i'll throw that out right there that's but the bottom three movies like if i'm looking at my ratings rankings right here the bottom three movies michael bay didn't want to direct in the first place so he pretty much kind of mailed in okay fair enough all right so let's start in 95 with bad boys
8: what's up Joe? what You, you pulling a
3: gun on me You guys are cops! I can't believe this! I should turn you into hard copy! Put your ass on a TV set! Yo, what are you doing, man? I got
8: this! Jojo, I got
11: 15 bullets in this gun. Mike! And I swear, if you don't start talking to him, I'm gonna fill your lying ass full of some hot shit. Now, what's up? Mike! He's a former ganja-smoking motherfucker! He ain't worth it! Do you want something? I'll bust your ass, too! So sad. You on your own, Jojo. What's up, Joe? But I'ma tell you like this. You splatter his ass, he's no good to us. Fuck that. Fuck that. I'm not going down over this shit. I'm not going down for you killing JoJo the Time Man. Okay, okay. Fuck that. I don't want no brain fragments on me. That shit gets in your clothes and it stinks. Okay. Fuck that, Joe.
8: Okay, I'll tell you what I know, all right? I don't know everything about
11: everything. I know a, a little bit about a little bit, okay? Tell them something, Joe. It's three guys, it, all right? Know. They got a laboratory. That... Shit, no, no, you know no, that? You no, it's two guys. Okay, one guy died on a plane crash last year. It was fucked up, but no, no. No, see, there should be more. Ah. Oh, uh, fuck. No, 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 Joe, Joe. It's one guy, really. One it's only Joe. one guy,
3: really. This guy's oh, real. M- one you, Joe, main Joe. guy. No, this guy's an Einstein motherfucking genius college boy, fucking egghead motherfucker. He got four eyes and glasses, motherfucker. He got a rich mom and daddy who live out in Coconut Grove. Where? Uh, tell him again, JoJo. I don't want you to get I'll here. tell you where he's at.
11: You would do that for us, JoJo?
3: Yeah, yeah, I want to help you guys. Oh, yeah. You just take that gun down. I got the address in the, in the mm-hmm. office.
11: Thanks a lot, JoJo. Why why don't you go grab that? Cool. You can go ahead. Now. Yeah, now it's good. Now it's real good, JoJo. This is on me, too.
3: Why don't you guys pick out some white walls for you?
7: We were both 14-ish. Bad Boys (laughs) came out.
0: Was that Will Smith's first leading role. Yeah. Well, first Will Smith who is the TV star, right. right? Jerry Bruckheimer found Michael Bay after uh the movie was going to star Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. Oh, it was going right. to be the original too. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. I remember reading that and being like what the hell. And it was going to star that- it was going to be directed by Tony Scott, who is one of my top 5 directors of all time. I love Tony Scott. And Tony Scott um, top gun and Man on Fire oh
7: right Man is on one Fire of,
0: like so then they were looking for stars and they stumbled across Arsenio Hall but then, <laughs> Cleveland's own Arsenio Hall <laughs> then they got Martin Lawrence and they got I guess Michael Bay was driving down the street and he saw Lawrence Fishburne and so <laughs> he shouted what? out the window like does, Lawrence does do you want to ha- be in my
7: movie <laughs> <does> that happens
0: <laughs> so he yelled out the car window and said Lawrence do you want to be in my movie and Lawrence I guess shook his head no and so then they found Will Smith <laughs>
7: Huh. i can't imagine what i mean the whole dana carvey john lovitz thing would have been just its own silliness but lawrence
0: fishburne so it would have been lawrence fishburne and martin lawrence yep and they got will and really so michael bay is fearful of uh what he calls movie jail which is you got your first movie is like your first impression right if it's bad they're gonna they're not really gonna give you much of a chance and he was good friends with david fincher at the time who's my ultimate number one director okay. and david fincher probably warned him of this because David Fincher does Alien 3 and finds a little bit of ma- movie jail. If David Fincher didn't do 7 right after that, he, he we probably wouldn't have, you know, like the social network and stuff that we do today. So... They start doing bad boys, and I feel like this is where Michael Bay, I don't think he was an asshole on set before bad boys. But I feel like when you're working with big attitudes like Martin Lawrence is known to be and Will Smith is known to be, then Michael Bay goes, oh, no, I have to step up as a director and get into people's faces so they know that this is my vision and this is what we are going to do. We don't, you and I don't know what he's like on
7: set. We know what we've read, which is true about anybody. We've heard stories about Martin Lawrence. We've heard stories, although Will Smith I always heard was like, I mean, I never, I don't think I ever heard anything remarkably bad about Will Smith. But what you're (laughs) saying is Michael Bay, as a director, realized that he had to call the shots, literally and figuratively, and make sure that, you know, he didn't let things get out of hand because ultimately it was going to be his ass on the line. I don't think there's anyone out there, no matter what your profession, who would disagree with that lie. If it's your ass on the line, then you have to do everything you can, everything you know, and you're physically and mentally able and competent to do in order to ensure that you put forth the best effort and the best product. I mean, that's true in filmmaking, just as much as it is in, you know, corporate business or sports, you know, the the coach of the teams, the manager of the office. I don't think that's a remarkable mindset the way that the people who talk about Michael Bay so pejoratively seem to think it is. Right,
0: absolutely. And like the one example that I found was, or Michael Bay and Martin Lawrence in an interview, and Michael Bay says, by week two, Martin was being a dick to me. And I was like, what is this attitude? And he didn't trust the white man, that was the deal. And Martin Lawrence says, that's exactly what it was. You know, Michael, he has a certain bravado. One time he said to me, I need your notes on the script. And I looked at him and I said, Michael, yeah, I'll get the notes to you when I get to it. And he just looked at me with this blank stare like, oh, he did not. And so then Michael Bay says, eventually i took him aside and said dude what's your deal i'm busting my ass to make you look good make you look funny and you just keep belittling me and martin lawrence gives a speech and he says i'm a black man that made it from nothing and i said you know what i'm a white guy who made it from nothing too i grew up in the fucking valley and he said instant respect and martin lawrence said i had to get to know him we grew to be the coolest so it's like right there like he's ted on ted you know like where where are you coming from because we everybody wants to look good with what we're producing you know
7: that was a martin lawrence quote so yeah There's room for interpretation and paraphrasing and stuff like that. But the line that got me was, I'm trying to make you look good and trying to make you look funny, which I think speaks to... Like what we're celebrating about Michael Bay as a director is that he tried to make things, people, situations, even products, like look cool. Right. To, to everything. His, well, to his audience, who he has very clearly specified. Right. I don't think he hey. just makes. I, I think when he says, and and this might be obvious, but when he says, "I make movies for teenage boys," I don't think that's literal. I think that's people who are able to have the, the you know the sensibilities and the appreciate the senses of humor and appreciate the the imagination and that sort of thing, I think that's much, much more of an ambiguous description than just literally yeah i make movies for 12 13 14 15 year old boys that's it um, and
0: i think it, if he came from commercials and he came from music videos his eye his visual aesthetic is every shot that you're looking at has to look good you know because he's he's there to like sell you a feeling or sell you a visual so that was even like the only thing so bat you you mentioned or you brought up that will smith you know before this wasn't a movie star he was the TV actor, the Fresh Prince,
8: uh-huh.
0: and, and both of them points to one scene in Bad Boys, where Will Smith is running down the street. Don't ever say I
6: wasn't there for you.
0: And women were screaming because Smith's shirt was flying open. Mm-hmm. And Smith not, argued with the
7: shot. Not just not just women. That was a good scene.
0: <laughs> so Michael Bay asked Will Smith, he was like, take off your shirt and run with the gun. And uh, Will Smith says, that's just on the edge of corny. And Bay was like, look, you're going to look like a movie star. So they shot the scene and Will Smith looked at the you know, the the film or the, the daily right after it. And he said, fuck, I do look like a movie star. That scene right there is what Will Smith like attributes to the fact that now he's this, you know, he brought in the Willennium.
7: What I appreciate about Michael Bay, this is kind of weird that I would jump from Bad Boys, which is his first movie, to Six Underground, which is his most recent. The action scenes in Six Underground, Six Underground I did not love, I'll be honest. It just was very, very, um, very confusing and very, I I feel like it's one of those ones that I might like again on a second viewing, but the first viewing, I, I did not love it. But what I appreciated the most about it was that there were scenes in that movie that I don't believe anyone else in the film industry, maybe even the world, could imagine and then bring to film specifically i'm talking about the scene there's a scene in the kitchen of i forget if it was like the bad guy's yacht or something like that they do this whole thing with magnets where they like magnetize the kitchen somehow so that knives fly across the room and end up stabbing all the bad guys like in succession that's probably not a far-fetched idea i'm sure that's that he's probably not the first person to be like oh magnetize knives throw them across the room but the way it was shot and the way that it was presented was something that i don't think anyone else could do and i think that just sort of you know cements his his role as as
0: what i believe is a genius so there's a film farther down where he talks about it he's a director of action which i think is the number one thing about michael like if you like action you like action sequences there are things in transformers in all five movies and i did not like all five movies but there are scenes in it where you're like how does somebody wrap their brain around what they're going to pull off You know. with all the moving parts that are in it and michael bay
7: literal moving parts like (laughs) years and stuff on optimus prime's head and all that but also moving parts like you know the complexities of of like a single scene like where optimus prime transforms for the first time and he's got all this visual stuff going on but then there's also this like sweeping camera and there's also this tension that's been built up i remember when when transformers came out and there was backlash same thing with ninja turtles when they both came out and people were like oh michael bay's gonna to direct them. And I thought to myself, who other than Michael Bay would you want to direct a movie about giant fighting robots? And right. mutant ninja turtles like who who would you want to do that
0: right yeah well that's what so he was driving down the street once and i think this is like a bad boys 2 reference but he he looked to the side and he saw uh no this is the island he saw a truck carrying a bunch of cargo and he was like what if that cargo just fell off the truck and then he writes it down and he puts it in a movie you know like he's just a- one of those people that goes like that's that's a scene right there i'm gonna direct it in something you know like and and then you get scenes like He probably was sitting around and was like, what if somebody could control magnets on a ship? And there's knives everywhere, and then and then you get that. So it's kind of like he's painting a visual moving scene. Well, so which goes that, with what we're saying.
7: That's interesting that you said that. The things falling off the truck isn't in just one of his movies. It's in like five, I think. But the thing is, the first one I remember it from is from The Rock, where there's the chase with the Ferrari in San Francisco, and I think there was a uh, truck carrying those like water cooler jugs
10: mm-hmm. that
7: all empty, and and it swerves and they all fall out. Bounce all over the street looks really cool. Fast and the rock was what 96 95? 90, yeah, 96. So 96. Fast forward, um, seven years later to 2003 with Bad Boys 2, he does that same trick again, but this time it's with dead bodies. Coming out of a meat wagon and landing on the hoods of cars. If, if you were to describe what I just described in terms of like a professional athlete who became known for his speed. And then over the next seven years, he practiced and he developed his speed in such a way that it became like a level that nobody had ever seen before. Like that would be nothing but respect. Mm. But for some reason, because it's Michael Bay, you know, and he he happens to have things falling off of a Budweiser truck. That's a clear product placement. People just go nuts and shit on it.
0: Right. The critic well, I think the critics got into the the audience's mind.
7: The Rock had that big car chase through San Francisco with First it was a Ferrari and then there was a Humvee, then there was a Dirt Bike and all that kind of stuff. Moving forward, I, I don't quite recall Six Underground, but I feel like they drove through a cafe or like a, a museum. Museum, that's what it was. So it's like he's taken from from like his first couple films, um, Bad Boys and The Rock, where there were these like really formulaic car chases. And now it's like it's almost like him saying, like, Dare me that I can't do a car chase through a museum.
0: But you look at these car chases that he does so well through bad boys too on the on the freeway the rock bad you know like the island all these car chases and yet he gets so much hate even though the fast and the furious franchise is taking over the world well that's that's another that's
7: a whole other podcast i mean you were talking about earlier like the moment when people started turning against michael bay i feel like the fast and the furious franchise with the trailer they just dropped is like close to that because (laughs) you know the only thing that it was missing was a car jumping over a shark um in my opinion and that's (laughs) probably
0: in the 10th one or whatever
7: that'll be in the 10th one when they go to space but uh (laughs) fast and the furious aside what were we talking about oh the car chases so you have much much more film experience than i do as a writer as someone who's been you know had a role behind the camera what what is the difference between directing a scene like the highway chase in bad boys 2 versus a scene like um versus a movie like say like 12 angry men which is known for for its um self-contained element to the movie, but it's essentially you could call one or two cameras, not a lot of movement, not a lot of danger, yet people would ultimately, uh, critics would ultimately put 12 Angry Men high above anything Michael Bay's ever done. What's
0: the difference between that? The biggest difference is responsibility. With a scene like 12 Angry Men, you are, the biggest thing for that one is you are casting 12 great actors. Mm -hmm. You're rehearsing with them, you're, you're helping them find their character, and then you're putting them in a room and and then trying to capture their performances with a car chase scene on a Highway. As far as Michael Bay is concerned, as a director, you have shut down that highway for a specific amount of time for a bajillion dollars, right? So that's like the, the <laughs> ultimate number one thing is money, right? You put 12 Angry Men in a room, you kind of got a little bit more lax with the money. Michael Bay one consistently has said that he comes in under budget and on time with all of his films, which is a rarity in the business. Like I Clint think, Eastwood is like he does that. Michael Bay comes in within budget because Michael Bay will also spend his own money if he's going to go over budget. And he started that with Bad Boys and I think got a lot of respect from like the actors and whatnot because... I, I know that. What kind of money are we talking? Like thousands, millions? Yeah, thousands, millions. He, I mean, he he's one of the highest paid directors as well because he takes cut from the box office. To do a car chase scene, you're the number one guy. You need to make sure that 250 people are all on the same page one because it's dangerous as shit. And two, because of all the working parts, if you, the the famous thing about the Bad Boys 2 car chasing is it was his car, the Ferrari that they were in, and it didn't get one mark on it, even though they're throwing cars at it. Really? And he was putting like, yeah, he was putting like stunt drivers and, you know, kind of off topic, but not really. And I think Michael Bay will agree with this. Stunt work, stunt people, I think should be nominated for Academy Awards, like Absolutely. for the best stunt of the year. Absolutely. Um, especially because of the danger that they're putting them in. And Michael Bay knows that danger, and they say like he is a bundle of nerves for the people that he's putting in harm's way for his movies. There's a there's a famous uh, scene from one of the Transformers film where Shia LaBeouf slipped like on a tarp, and a sword went into his eye. And Michael Bay apparently was crying next to him on the ground because he thought he hurt his actor, and just was visibly shaken. Where Shia LaBeouf is like, "What is this liquid coming out of my eye?" And they had to like stop filming filming for a little bit and whatnot, but Michael Bay loves his people on set. He is just a bundle of nerves because he's got one day to get this car chase done, you know, and everything is riding on his shoulders.
2: Right. And
0: think about being that, like in Bad Boys 2. Think about being that guy where everything is riding on your shoulders and you know you're going to get shit on anyway because people, for whatever the fuck reason, hate you. Right.
7: (laughs) So I don't know enough about 12 Angry Men to be intelligent about it, but... The Good Man has a similar kind of aesthetic where it's a contained courtroom for most of the movie. All the dramatic and all the memorable scenes are in a courtroom between one, two or three actors. There are maybe two or three other supporting actors, extras in the jury and in the courtroom. Couple on that with, you know, the director, whoever else is on set. I don't know an exact number, but I would imagine that it's a lot less of a bear to manage a set like that than it would be a 70 mile per hour highway chase where bodies are flying out of a car.
0: Right. I think like once you do a few good men, then you're just kind of dealing with actors egos and, you know, people feeling like the worst thing about Hollywood is the waiting. Like everything takes forever. It seems to set up and, you know, if something does not go right. You have to reset and everybody's got to get back to their places. And if you get if you have a person with a high ego, where then they're just saying, you know, like, if you don't get this right, I'm going to go into my set and not come out. Apparently Sean Connery, you know, to kind of rope it all back to The Rock, which actually it works because Aaron Sorkin, who wrote A Few Good Men, actually helped on the Rock screenplay. Okay. Uh, along second. with Quinn and Tarantino. <laughs> really. Yeah, I feel like reading between the lines, Michael Bay has a lot of friends within the industry. Like, it seems like James Cameron's always there to help him out. Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, now Quentin Tarantino and Aaron Sorkin, David Fincher. Um, but uh, Sean Connery, you know, is known to be hot and cold with his people. And this is now Michael Bay's second film, with uh-huh. the first one being with <laughs> Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. Like, Sean Connery is got to be like in his 70s at this point. The studio called michael bay into the office to yell at them and i guess sean connery was going to go to play golf and was in full-on scottish golf gear and was like oh let me go with you and so he walks into this meeting and sean connery comes in behind him to talk to the studio and the studio is going to yell at him and and sean connery says leave him the fuck alone (laughs) and let's go back to make a baby
11: stand easy
6: thought i'd been in the service a long time name and rank sailor it's army actually
8: answer the question and address him as general sir
6: captain john patrick mason general sir of her majesty's sas retired of course you're a long way from home captain How the hell are you involved in this? Oh, I have a unique knowledge of this prison facility. I was, uh, formerly a guest here. Did they bother to tell you who I am, why I'm doing this, or are they just using you like they do everybody else? All I know is you were big in Vietnam. I saw the highlights on television. And you wouldn't have any fucking idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's earth into battle and then see their memory betrayed by their own fucking government. I don't quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million and, uh, This is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, General Sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson. Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious, according to Oscar Wilde. Thank you for
9: making my
0: point. And Sean Connery was also helping Michael Bay not be a com- complete dick on the set because he was yelling at people too for Michael Bay. Like, I guess there was a crane that was like hanging out, and uh, Sean Connery said, Why is that there? That crane's been out here to- for two days and nobody's using it. You're wasting money. <laughs> like, interesting. I don't know a ton
7: about Sean Connery. I know actually most of the stuff I've probably heard about Sean Connery is not very flattering, but um, it's clear that he's a big player and a legendary actor you know, separate from what he might be or not be as a human being. But that's a ringing endorsement in terms of someone in your industry going to bat for you. Here's what I'm imagining. Do you think Sean Connery watched bad boys? I don't. What do you think? that? (laughs) Like, I mean, some, some degree of, of bad boys must have been presented to Sean Connery
0: at some point. Like some visualization. Like this is the, this is the shot where we wrap around your body and show you looking up into the air (laughs) (laughs)
7: And and you know what? That's another thing, too. So Michael Bay always does that shot. It's the Mm -hmm. guy who's just been beaten up or thrown out of a car or something like that, collects himself, stands up, the camera sweeps around and dollies up and he stands there looking at like whatever got away. Yes, a hero shot. Hero shot. That's Michael Bay's shot. So who's another director with like
0: a signature shot like that? I would say Fincher likes to have the camera travel through inanimate objects to get to his next point of reference. Okay. who did? I don't know why I'm blanking on this. Any given Sunday. Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. Oh, right.
7: So Oliver Stone always puts himself in his movies, right? Mm -hmm. Like he always does a quick cameo. He did it and he was a commentator in that one. He was a stockbroker in Wall Street. And Oliver Stone, like, is regarded as a, I would say, a pretty prolific and respected director, right? Mm-hmm. And he has that signature, call it his, like, signature finishing move, whatever you want to call it, where he inserts himself in the movies, whereas Michael Bay does the same thing, same exact mechanism of a signature shot, and people always say,
0: oh, it's the same thing over and over and over. Why is that? You would want the audience to be like, yes! You know, because, so I I'm I'm a huge podcast listener, and there was a, a movie podcast, I'm not going to say the name, that I listened to, like, over 400 episodes, and they praised Bad Boys for Life so much, because they hated Bad Boys 1 and 2, because they hated hate Michael Bay, but Bad Boys for Life was literally two directors trying to emulate Michael Bay and failing.
7: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that, that's the thing too, is like, here, here's, here's another argument, I guess, for the whole genius thing. You know a Michael Bay movie when you see it. And I feel like as someone in the creative industry of making movies, that's a huge accomplishment. When so many movies look the same and feel the same, when you can make a movie and show
0: 10 seconds of it to someone and be like, oh yeah, that's Michael Bay. Like, isn't that a huge, huge deal? And there are t- like all the interviews of celebrities and other filmmakers, that are talking about Michael Bay agree with that exact statement you just said. Like, you show 10 seconds and that's a Michael Bay film. Right. With high art
7: directors, it seems like they get praised for something like that. Like, oh, classic Tarantino, classic Scorsese, whatever. But Michael Bay just keeps getting hit with, oh, the same Bayhem over and over again. And it's really really it's it's very i won't claim to never doing anything hypocritical but that's that's a really really big example of hypocrisy i feel
0: like take an actor like gene or dustin hoffman as we were just talking about him in outbreak like dustin hoffman always just kind of comes off dustin hoffman-y as we say you know except Except in hook (laughs) but there's a a film familiarity there's a comfortable feeling when it comes to like i'm gonna sit back and watch a dustin hoffman film and i feel like that's what we get for like like, I know if I go see a Quentin Tarantino film, I'm going to get a Quentin Tarantino film. Like, he's not going to surprise me by all of a sudden, like, coming out with, like, a Little Women or something like that, you know? Like,
7: and you he get routine, which- gets, he routinely gets nominated for Oscars, gets praised mm-hmm. for etc.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, Michael like Michael Bay's films are routinely nominated for Oscars and sound. Sound, you know? Be- yeah. <laughs> I'm excited if a Michael Bay film comes out because I know what I'm getting if I pay for, to go see that Michael Bay film. It's the same thing with, like, Oliver Stone and Robert Mecca, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, like, all the ones that have their own style and their originality. I feel we should covet more than we do, and we do with almost everybody across the board except for Michael Bay. And that comes around, like, after The Rock and once we get into Armageddon. Right. Okay. And that's how hand-in-hand does the hatred for Michael Bay go with casting Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis in the leads of Armageddon. So Armageddon's a big one that we could probably talk
7: at length. So there's a there's a, a montage in Armageddon that I feel like sets up that movie in a way where it's very clear that Michael Bay knows how to give stake in his characters. And it's the scene where they, where Liv Tyler and Bruce Willis go back to the NASA Center in Houston, and they're talking about which rem- members of the oil drilling crew they're going to bring. And it's like a I don't know, five minute montage or something where they talk about, oh yeah, Steve, what's his name? Will Patton's character. Try every casino in Sin City. or And it's just <laughs> these real short, quick, like barely one or two line descriptions coupled with maybe like a line of dialogue and a quick scene. But by the end of that, that montage, they're all pulled into the boardroom and you know exactly who each one of those characters is. Yeah, I, like, I feel like that's a pretty big accomplishment. It's, it's almost nonchalant and, and it seems very kind of effortless, which in itself is an accomplishment,
2: I feel like. We're sending up two shuttles, two teams. If I do this, I'm going to want to take my own men. You
9: got it.
0: Curleen it's Harry
2: Stamper. You see Bear, you tell him Harry's looking for him. These guys get off this rig, they scatter. Jay Otis Curleen Bear. Probably the only black man on a big dog in Kadoka, South Dakota. Come and get Papa
0: Bear!
2: Uh, Max. You got a weight limit on the shuttle?
7: Hey, Mama! Oh, that's so sweet,
8: Maxie!
7: <laughs> hey, did you give me one of them yellow jelly bear claws? I- Are you in trouble with the law again? Oh,
3: no, Mama! Maxie! Oh, I swear, Mama! Shh!
11: You know I want Rock Hound.
3: We call him Hound because, well, um, he's horny. Uh, you might want to start with every bar in New Orleans. That is a big, shiny mountain.
2: How long have you been married? For two weeks. See those diamonds? Yeah. It's not a diamond. Would you
8: like another drink? Yeah. Sir, <laughs> FBI. Oh. Not that We have a national security matter. Good for you. Let's go. Now. How old are
3: you? Oscar Choice. Facey, but absolutely brilliant geologist. He owns a horse ranch outside of El Paso. <laughs> what the fuck?
9: Mr. Chick Chapel.
0: At the craps table, Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada. Yes. yes! Last
3: well,
0: time. Chapel. Game's over.
3: Who's gonna run the other rig? How about Benny? He's good.
2: The only one knows how to run as well as I do is AJ. I
3: thought you said you
8: couldn't trust him. I thought you said I could.
2: Yeah, you are on your way, A.J. Well, you know, being in business for yourself has its advantages. make my own hours. Nobody shoots me in the leg. You don't got a gun on you now, do you? Oh, good. So I kind of wanted to get back to this whole thing about you asking me for help. Does that mean that there's actually a job that Mr. All Go No Quit Big Nuts Harry Stamper can't handle by himself? And needs my expert advice? Something like that, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, is it is something like that, or is it that? Yeah, you and me got a real problem. You know, Harry, there are only uh, five words. I want to hear from you right now. Those words are, you know, AJ. I really look up to you. You've Been a hero of mine for a long time, and I'm very impressed with your work. I'm emotionally closed off. That's like that's like eleven words or something. You know what? How about just AJ? Sorry. I love you. No way, Jay. There's not a job on the planet that I'd want you to work with me on. I mean that.
0: So what are you doing here? Barry, what's the job? The the major hate against Armageddon was because high art critics felt like it was unbelievable. And actually, when we, I was talking to people about this Michael Bay episode, they're like, one particular stood out and was like, I just can't stand Armageddon. And I was like, what's wrong with Armageddon? He's like, oh, just, you know, you're setting up a bunch of oil drillers to, to save the world or whatnot. And this all came out because Michael Bay took a geology course with a tectonic expert at Wesleyan. And the or the tectonic expert said calamities happen it's the plumbers who will fix the world oh that's absolutely true that's there's what we're going through right now
7: (laughs) yeah no you're absolutely right the book world war z before it was a movie the book's fantastic and it talks about how like you know if there ever were an apocalypse which who knows. Catch me tomorrow. As long you as know. aliens are involved. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the the tradesmen, you know, like plumbers, contractors, people who can build things, people who can make things safe, people who can refine things so that we can use them. Those are going to be the people who are of the most value. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to throw a stone at Armageddon and say, why wouldn't they just train the astronauts to be oil drillers instead of training the oil drillers to be astronauts? And my answer to that would be because you have to remember that it's not a documentary, it's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like sometimes people go into Michael Bay's movies expecting accuracy and even to a degree plausibility when these are the same people who were over the moon for E.T. and The Shining, which... Mm -hmm. You know, are equally as implausible um, or as far-reaching, maybe as oil drillers becoming astronauts.
0: One of the quotes is, "How do you make the fact that the world is about to blow up seem like a lot of fun?" You know, like, and that's that's Armageddon. Like, the movie has a lot of heart. The movie is probably one of the top five movies that c- could make me cry if I didn't yeah. fight it as hard as possible. Yeah, <laughs> I just I never understood how people could turn on this movie that I think is one one of the most fun movies that moves really well. That's the other thing with Michael Bay films. They move really quickly. If you're strapped to a seat in a movie theater, like that movie is just going to just keep coming at you. Right. The thing you mentioned with Armageddon,
7: and I remember, you know, like growing up as a kid, you used to see these like, you know, broadly painted characteristics of of good movies were that they would make the audience cry. They would appeal Mm -hmm. to you. You know, like if you were a kid watching watching a TV show where the characters went to a movie, and someone was crying in the audience you were like oh they're seeing a really good movie you know like that's a movie that's really tugging at their heartstrings. Michael Bay does that like he did it with Armageddon I could have teared up at the end of the Benghazi movie um, with all the ridiculousness that was going on there partially because my medicine lately has been making me a little whacked out but also because that was it was another instance where he only took probably 10 or 15 minutes if that of screen time to and it wasn't perfect but to paint these characters as very human with a lot to lose and then threw them in this terrible situation that wasn't their fault and it was just tragedy after tragedy. If you're judging a movie's relevance and critical success by how it appeals to an audience on an emotional level, you can't neglect movies like Armageddon. Right. Even if they are ridiculous oil drillers cursing and spitting one-liners in space, I don't know a lot of people who aren't moved by the end of that movie. I don't think I would trust somebody that's not moved by the end of the movie. (laughs) So I guess my point in that whole rant is that, like, Michael Bay just doesn't just do car chases and gunfights and knife throwing and action and robots and monsters or whatever. He clearly understands how to just yank tears out of an audience's face.
0: With Armageddon, with Nicolas Cage, uh, with Martin Lawrence and with Shia LaBeouf, Michael Bay seems to have a knack of, like, finding these actors that you will find out later in life or during the moment that are going through horrible things in their lives or like being in a horrible mental space and he gets these kind of raw performances out of them or I think like Armageddon might be to me Ben Affleck's best work I don't Boiler Room (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Boiler Room was great (laughs) <laughs> but he had one one emotion in boiler room you know like i feel yeah. like this i think he gets the best out of ben affleck maybe david fincher with gone girl but david fincher casted ben affleck probably one off of a michael bay recommendation but gone girl is about a guy that you're not necessarily supposed to like and ben affleck you know is is kind of like a michael bay of actors where for kind of no nonsense reason maybe because he was in jiggly or because the press blew up with the Benefer fiasco you know through no fault of his own people People hate him Mm -hmm. and you can't like explain it to people you know like you're like why do you hate ben affleck oh he's a horrible actor no he's not (laughs) no like i would i would disagree with that like he he delivers what he's supposed to on screen but there's armageddon there's another actor that michael bay had to put in his place like right off the bat he saw bottle rocket with owen wilson and said we have to get this guy in there and then owen on the first day owen was an hour and a half late to set And Michael Bay put out like an APB with all the PAs on Warner Brothers line and says, call me when you find them. And every day on the Armageddon set costed a quarter of a million dollars. And so when Owen Wilson finally showed up, Michael Bay put his arm around him and says oh and you know what I worked with Sean Connery and I gotta tell you he was never late to set and Owen Wilson was never late again so like he like will go up and nip problems in the bud before they start and isn't that the job of a director so I mean like so that you know making sure every all his ducks in a row like he might be a dick about it or what people will say is a dick and realize everybody in the entertainment industry probably has an ego especially if you made it because there's a lot of no's in the world So you got to be mentally tough in order to get past all the no's in order to get up to a level of like an Armageddon type movie. So and to work on the film, there's got to be like twenty five hundred people. So that's twenty five hundred egos that Michael Bay has to be the biggest one on set. So nobody well, not even
7: not even the biggest ego. He doesn't have to be the biggest ego. He has to know how to manage all the small. He has to know how to manage all the other big ego. Right. Like, I think you can be, you know, we've both worked with bosses before and some of the coolest. Most effective bosses are the ones who are humble, but just know what to say to people. And like you were just saying the the Sean Connery comment about him never being late, like he clearly knew Owen Wilson was kind of was an up and coming actor at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So he probably, you know, had some degree of admiration for Sean Connery also, I'm sure Michael Bay meant it as a jab, like, who the hell do you think you are, kid? And he was able to say that, assuming it's all true, that in that moment, nip that problem in the bud. When, you know, you hear other stories of stars just running roughshod over directors, or I I keep thinking of, like, Tropic Thunder, when you know, they're all going crazy at the beginning, and Tom Cruise gets on and yells at the director you're supposed to be controlling these guys and stuff, like, everything you've, and I know that was a movie, I know that was fiction, but everything you've described Based on your notes and your research, is the exact opposite of that. Like that was a character caricaturization of like the silliness of Hollywood. I mean, it was. That's what it was. A character caricaturization of the silliness of Hollywood. Whereas you've just given evidence, piece of evidence after piece of evidence that Michael Bay, like, is a competent and good director.
1: Or are they unsure what you're doing when you're out there moving the well, camera? Yeah, they're
4: moving the camera, they're like, God, we didn't do that on Die Hard. And, uh, <laughs> and Sean Connery is like, you sure that's going to work? And I'm like, yeah, Sean, it'll yeah. work.
1: <laughs> What's the hardest thing you found for an actor to handle? Is it when the camera gets up to their face and they're supposed to do that kind of shot, is that hard for them even though they don't say it's hard?
4: What to handle? Well, like, here's an example. Ben Affleck, we had to blow this door that was coming right over his head, and he wasn't doing it. It just it, he was doing it, but it was terrible. And I'm like, and I knew I was like, hey Ben, you know I know you haven't done a lot of action movies, okay? And it would start getting really mad, all right? And I wanted to get him really angry, so I got him pissed off at me, so that he would do it. He says, all right, I'll show you, I'll show you, and he did it, and he did it great, you know. Uh, he so hadn't gotten to that level of emotion in film before. He hadn't gotten to the point of before. like, you know, like. There's a door, it's coming at me, it might kill me, and, and, and he's got to dive through this porthole in the nick of time, and uh, he just wasn't there. So I literally got him angry at me.
1: Do you find sometimes you get a better performance out of them if they're tired on certain things? Yeah.
4: Actually, Ben was had the stomach flu, and we're talking, he had a bucket over here, and he did a great performance. I kept, I said, Ben, this is great. You can't go home because this is you're, you're doing a great performance. I mean, he was dead sick. You know, and uh, he did a great performance.
1: Wonder they don't kill directors, isn't it? I mean, yeah, someone, it's, it's, you know, it is. I would it's. think you need a security man after a while. Sometimes I do.
4: Bruce actually, he says, he says, you know what, Mike, I am not coming out of my trailer till you wear a spacesuit and feel the pain. I came out after lunch wearing a spacesuit, directed for about three hours, and I'm like, I told him, I said, these are
1: nothing. You know, it tweaked my neck for like a week. <laughs> now I know Cameron occasionally uh-huh. will scream. Uh-huh. When I worked in sports, I had some directors that screamed occasionally. Uh-huh. They would just right. lose a little control. Uh-huh. Do you ever go into the screaming mode, or are you are? Are you more of a time bomb ready to go off?
4: Oh, I'm not a time bomb. I'm, I'm a very open... You know, I, 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 you know, I played sports and it's like I always had tough coaches. So I, I'm on my crew, but we laugh a lot. But I'm tough. I'm, I'm like, and tough in that I like to keep shooting and keep moving. Do people you know? know
1: when you're serious?
4: Yeah, they know when I'm serious. This is the same crew I've worked with on The Rock, and uh, do you pout? No, never. You just?
1: No, I don't pout. Never pout. You know. So when you're mad, it's pretty much obvious. When Michael's not having I his, I don't like stew.
4: See, the thing is, I don't stew. I don't, I don't like sit there and just be angry. You go from I, zero I to one hundred. I get it out, yep. and it's like. Like, and then we laugh about it
1: yeah, okay. five minutes later just trying <laughs> to get into the psyche of Michael Bay thank you very much will charge you
0: $50 for that I'll send you my bill thank you so we were talking about, like, I think we should split this into two parts.
7: Honestly, is- at this point, I'm thinking three.
0: <laughs> because but- <laughs> well- there is one last thing on Armageddon to, okay. to get to, because there's one thing that we have to talk about when we come to Michael Bay. His, his biggest critique is his misogyny with right. women, right? Mm-hmm. And there's two huge episodes that were splattered all over the press that people point to and go, that man's a chauvinist pig based off of his interactions with Megan Fox and Kate Beckinsale. Okay. So, but neither of them are on the Armageddon set. And I think this is the story that I'm about to parlay is, is a good prologue to what we get to. And it has to deal with Ben Affleck. So Ben Affleck, new guy on the scene. You know, this is going to be his first like major action movie. And we and uh, Michael Bay right now is still working with Jerry Bruckheimer. And Jerry Bruckheimer is, you know, famous for really catapulting Tom Cruise to the spotlight with like the, the Days of Thunders and the Top Guns and everything of the world. So Ben Affleck gets to the set and they say like they put him through the Bruckheimer Bay machine and told him like, look, you're no longer chasing Amy. You're going to have to go to the gym. You're going to get a tan. You're going to get a haircut. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Jerry takes Michael Bay aside and says, Ben Affleck has baby teeth. Do you remember like how like Ben Affleck and like Goodwill Hunting and whatnot has those very small type baby teeth? I don't doubt but I don't recall that. So Jerry Bruckheimer's like, look, I fixed Cruz's teeth because I didn't like how they were filming. So we're going to have to fix Ben Affleck's teeth. And so to do Armageddon, Ben Affleck got a beautiful new set of teeth, which is now his smile that he has for everything. So the reason why this is a prologue to everything is because a lot of Part of the misogyny that michael bay is accused of is based off of women's physical appearances right and i think if you if you probably look at his body of work it's physical appearance in general this- this man, as we we're talking about, with like the commercial work and with the music videos and everything like that, he has a specific visual aesthetic that he is going for. And if the actor is showing up to set, be them male or female, he is going to comment on their beauty. But because it sounds so much more horrible if a man does it to a woman, that's what blows up on the headlines. Where like I feel he literally changed the dental bite of Ben Affleck, and nobody talks about that. You know? like, well, well, also. What we mentioned
7: earlier, telling Will Smith to run with his shirt open, is that not sort of the same vein.
0: That's when I when we started the show and I said like I have a this is going to go into this beautiful order where I'm going to try and convince people Michael Bay I feel like it helps the case if you say no he is just blunt to everybody. This is what he wants. He has 250 people waiting. He's wasting a quarter of a million dollars a day. This is what he wants. Can you do that for him? Getting his actors and actresses to look a certain way, bluntly
7: uh instructing them and directing them seems like it's something that he does without prejudice, based on those examples that you just told me. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a, an unfair argument. It seems like there's evidence for certainly both sides. I didn't. I definitely didn't know Ben Affleck's teeth were fake. That's heartbreaking. I certainly didn't know they were fake as a result, specifically, of Armageddon. Um, and the Will Smith shirt thing also is like, a, um, you know, I'm sure there's room for an argument about double standards, where telling a man to run with his shirt open is different than telling a woman to run with his shirt open, or Uh, run in a specific way or something like that. But I think the point is that, you know, again, you have to stress that like we've never been on a Michael Bay movie set. We don't know anything other than what we've read and researched, which we try to do pretty impartially, I think, especially you. And it seems like what you just said, that Michael Bay has a visual aesthetic that he knows is going to help him do his job, which is to make a profitable movie.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like he's the Andy Warhol of directors. Like, like he has a his colors are bright you know they they pop out put it on the wall people will look over to and gravitate toward it and i think like that's the images that he puts on screen i'm sure he could direct the can of soup
7: and shoot it in a way that you've never seen before yeah and to me that that signifies a genius and an artist so to give our listeners both of them a breather we um cut right here for a break come back and then barrel through the rest of the films sounds good sounds good you brought him to the to the dance so why don't you introduce him
0: all right we're gonna take you out with this special michael bay three-part episode with the vocal stylings of a man named swamp fox Fries who hosts his own podcast the vintage baseball podcast so if you like the way that he sounds he will tell you all about the rules and regulations and the history of vintage baseball with the vbb podcast so this is his love letter i would say it's a love letter to michael bay
7: and Absolutely. This Love Letter to Michael Bay we're about to play, we um, actually received, I think, about four months ago uh, when we were planning on doing this show. So some of the stuff might be a little backdated. But when I listened to this, first of all, it made me miss hanging out with this dude because his his energy and his positivity come through just off the charts. But it's a very, very personal look at how much someone can enjoy a film and what the experience of going to see a movie can can mean for your memories. Um, I, I won't spoil too much, but the way he talks about going to see these very specific movies that he talks about made you realize that something that simple, going to see a movie, can be very important, very enjoyable, and very special for a lot of people. So I think that that's what I took away from this, and it was a pleasure to know that he was going to be a part of it. So we'll be back with part two of Second Chance Cinema. Um, there's a very, very special episode about one of our favorite directors
11: michael
12: bay all right right. first thanks bro and mc for having me on the podcast big fan long time listener first time caller so this is my defense of michael bay so the case i'm going to make for michael bay is going to be centered around four moves it's going to be centered around bad boys the rock Armageddon and transform. It, it's a very like it well in the conversations that I've had with people now having gone to college and majored in theater and studied acting and stuff like that there are certain names that are mentioned that uh elicit the same reaction within those circles Michael Bay is one of those so when you would say like a Michael Bay film or Michael Bay there's like an eye roll sometimes it's like oh he's beneath us but my first introduction to Michael Bay was in 1993 with the Meatloaf music video I would do anything for love. Now, if you if, if people know the song and if you don't know the song, there's something missing in your life and that song will fill that void. Um go back and watch the video. It is this cinematic music video. Music videos back in the 90s were different. I mean, in the late 80s, early 90s, even into like the mid 90s, music videos were a production. I mean, Michael Jackson got music videos um, premiered on primetime television. Uh, and But I'm not comparing Meatloaf to Michael Jackson. But I mean, this video had everything. It had suspense. It had action. And yes, it, it had a beautiful woman that was uh, lip syncing the, the female vocalist part. And she probably played a role in me really uh, loving the music video as well. I'm not going to lie. But I mean, it's 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 an iconic music video, and it was directed by Michael May. So, from there, we get into the the, the Michael Bay films that, I'm going to say these films are relevant in pop cultural history. I mean, I it's, they're not like you know, Oscar-worthy films and things like that, but in pop culture standards, these films are the cream of the crop. And it, it starts with Bad Boys. So, in 1995, Bad Boys drops. And it was unique in the sense that the two main characters, Characters. this was their first introduction to like action movie to, you know, the world. Like, cause you had Will Smith who, you know, had minor parts in in smaller movies but was mainly known as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and known as like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Um, And then you had Martin who, whose television show was only three years old at that time. So you had Martin coming in at the height of his comedic career and you had Will Smith kind of like reinventing himself. He wasn't like, he wasn't gonna be the Fresh Prince anymore he this was his his introduction as a, a legit action star and i mean bad boys is i'm i understand i'm i'm probably in the minority on this i think it's brilliant i love that movie it um it really had everything it, it it catered to a wide wide range of audiences because up until this point i mean you had eddie murphy in the Beverly hill cops series and then like you know 48 hours but i mean you had two of the largest stars in the african African American community spearheading this this action movie, and they knocked it out of the park. And it had such a cult following. I don't even want to say cult, because it was a blockbuster movie. But Bad Boys had such a following that they came out with Bad Boys Two in the early two thousands. And oh, that was appointment viewing as well. Like I went to go see that movie in the one of the only remaining drive-ins in, in Columbus, Ohio. I so I was driving then, uh, nineteen ninety nine. Plymouth neon red carter rosa i spent all day detailing her and cleaning those windows myself so when i was gonna be at that drive-in i was gonna have the best view at the whole place because it was bad boys too and it and that's what it deserved so get there and the young lady i was dating at the time fell asleep mid-movie slept through most of it well, that relationship did not last long anyways but i mean it he didn't miss a step they picked up from where bad boys left off and gave you even more for bad boys too and at this point i mean so martin had had a few movies come out prior to that uh nothing to like the the bad boys success but and then at that point will smith had established himself as an action movie star so I remember in college reenacting like scenes from this uh, movie with Spro, we would just, you know, (laughs) go back and forth with lines and, you know, our roommates thought we were crazy and people looked at us weird, but it was this bond that we shared. So that, I mean, Bad Boys holds a special place in my heart. And then shortly after that, it's almost like, you know, in the same state because Bad Boys takes place in LA and then they go a little bit north to San Francisco and then you (laughs) kind of get the, the opposite Bad Boys with uh, The Rock and Nick Cage and Sean Connery. Now, it was, that movie was, uh, Michael Bay, you know, the, the thing that I think about when I think about Michael Bay films is that, that shot where it's like, it, it pans, the, the camera pans across the screen, and then the sun, you know, the ray of sun is behind the the actor, and, and then you get, like, either those drums or that, that guitar solo where they hold the note where it's like, and, I mean, that, that's a classic Michael Bay trope it's very bayon but once again i mean you have like nicholas cage who had you know a pretty stellar film career uh, up until like 1996 when the rock came out but i feel like i mean this was his first big budget blockbuster action movie and it was kind of like his introduction into that genre and who better to help him into that than sean connery you know 007 mr uh action himself and i mean the rock had is another movie just full of these brilliant one-liners. <laughs> And it is like uh Sean Connery, uh loser he's like, what do you say? He says uh, win, uh, Losers always whine about trying their best, and winners go home and fuck the prom queen. And then Nick Cage comes back with Carla was the prom queen. It was I mean hilarious. It's full of those one lines like when when Sean Connery, like Nick Cage asks Sean Connery about like the other bombs or the Marines or something, and Sean Connery just gives him a thumbs up. And then you have that character that Nick Cage is playing that's so like full of anxiety and manic and he just goes okay I mean it was and then it had these great action sequences so it was kind of like the white bad boys I mean that happened in 96 and then in 1998 this is like out of the four movies this is like number one on my list and it just it resonates on a different level with me and everybody makes fun of me for it and I don't care because I'm gonna live my best life all right that's Armageddon I mean talk about an all-star cast for this movie i mean. Give me a break. Everybody is in this movie. Uh, a young Owen Wilson is in this um and and it, it it's this cast of characters. Yes, the premise is ridiculous. You know, do you get people that be like, "Oh, there's an asteroid heading to Earth. Let's get let's drill and put a nuclear bomb on it." Okay, but that's not why you're going to this movie. You're not going to the movie for a realistic approach to the problem that is presented, okay? You're going for those operatic scenes of like, you know, slow motion walks and and the sun Setting in the background, and so let me give you a little bit of backstory here. You know, we—I'd seen the the, um, the the commercials and the trailers, and Aerosmith had just made a comeback with that song, and so I organized like this, you know, to go see the movie with some friends. And the girl that I had a crush on all throughout high school, I uh, she agreed to come along, so it was kind of like a date, but not really. But so we're sitting there, and we got there late, so we're like in the second row, and we're sitting there, and she's sitting next to me. We're sharing popcorn; it's like real romantic and shit. All of a sudden, the like the part spoiler alert for those who haven't watch, uh, seen Armageddon. Uh, you know, fast forward. Okay, so the part where Bruce Willis pulls Ben Affleck's ho- air hose and then rips the patch off and puts him on the, the little lift thing and he's he's like, she's your little girl now and like Ben Affleck is crying and screaming, Harry, don't do this, Harry, I love you. I'm sitting there next to the girl that I have had a crush on forever and I'm like, I'm about to cry in this movie theater. What the hell is going on? She can't see me cry, what's gonna happen? And it, it wrecked me. So in Armageddon, you have Bruce Willis, an established action movie star, but, I mean, while he's possibly the main character, you know, he's one of the characters. I mean, it's almost like it's um, Ben Affleck's introduction into the action movie genre and, and the cast around them as well. So, he's taking these characters that you normally wouldn't see in action movies and putting them on the fourth, and it, it's brilliant. I guess that's kind of why at the end of Armageddon, Bruce Willis dies and he passes the tour to Ben, whoo. That's deep. I'm going to have to take a second here. I literally, after that movie, I went out and bought the soundtrack. I think I probably still have it somewhere around here. The CD of the actual soundtrack from Armageddon, and I listened to that for the summer of 1998. It was on a steady rotation. I mean, and that's something Michael Bay utilizes pretty well, uh, the, the music in the movies, whether it's the score or the or, uh, the original songs for the soundtrack. But, I mean, that movie in the summer of 1998 made a lasting impression on me as a as a young child as a young adult But all of these movies, Bad Boys, Armageddon, Bad Boys 2, all led to a culmination where Michael Bay had, you know, laid the groundwork and, and, you know, I I had been converted to a believer of Michael Bay films. And in 2007, he releases Transformers. Now, I feel like that his movies were all made specifically for me. So, being a kid of the 80s, yeah, the Transformers cartoons, oh, the Transformer cartoon movie, who, having the toys... And then this director who has made dope films that I love is now going to bring them to the big screen. I had to go see it. Now, gosh, I was living in New York when this movie came out, and like it was like close to fifty dollars to go see this movie for like two tickets. And I, I I was broke, but this was Transformers, and I was gonna make the I was gonna make the sacrifice. Yeah, I was gonna have to miss a meal the next day, but I was gonna see Transformers and it was worth every penny. That movie was on point. Yes, everybody can talk shit about, you know, Transformers 2 and 3 and 4 and and make fun of that, but the first Transformers movie was damn near perfect and i even did like i remember i (laughs) it was the first bootleg film i bought in new york um at the place where i would do my laundry at the laundromat there was always this lady selling uh you know dvds and movies and i remember purchasing transformers from her for five (laughs) dollars It was such a horrible copy, too. But I didn't care because that movie was dope. So here you had, once again, like Michael Bay kind of doing what he had done with Bad Boys and Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. So Shia LaBeouf was... um. I mean God, he was the Disney kid from Even Stevens and yeah he had done like the Indie films of like the battle for Shaker Heights And stuff like this but this was a big Budget action film this was Transformers Baby and so he comes in And I was like man I, I wonder how this is gonna Translate because I'd always Seen him as that goofy Even Stevens Kid but I mean it- it's almost like Michael Bay knows how to take those actors In the- in that part of their career And nurture them and guide them Into the action movie genre And he it was almost like an ensemble cast I mean he had Tyrese in that movie (laughs) and you know it was because he was in uh, Fast and Furious 2 but he hadn't launched his Fast and the Furious, like, action movie campaign yet. So, I mean, getting into Transformers was, you know, his first step into that door. And it, once again, it checked all the boxes of a Michael Bay film. Did it have, you know, those those uh, those epic scenes of, you know, heroes slow motion walking or, you know, um, you know, the, the sun setting in the background during, like, the golden hour and, and glistening on their, the movie star's face. And, and it... Uh, the music, the one scene that came out, you know, I was sitting in the theater and I actually, because I you know I'm sometimes loud when I watch movies and I say things out loud. It's this, so it's the scene uh, where Sam and his friend are getting ready to leave the park and he sees Megan Fox's character walking down the road and Bumblebee turns the radio dial and it pops on uh, Drive by the car. And I love that song. So when that happened, I went, shut up. And I knew, I was like, this This movie is speaking directly to me. And I loved every second of it. So that's the case I'm making for Michael Bay. I think that he was able, especially for myself and people who grew up with me and in my generation, um... He was introducing new action stars to us and doing it so well that, you know, we were going to trust whatever ha- whatever happened next. So, like, I mean, if you think about it, in the 80s and the 90s, the big action stars were, you know, uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and uh, I'll say Kurt Russell because he was in Tango and Cash and like uh, Swayze and Roadhouse, you know, these were the action stars. And Michael Bay was introducing new action stars to us, people that we wouldn't necessarily 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 consider for action movie and it worked in every film it worked and you know i mean these are just the the ramblings of you know 15 and 14 and 15 and 16 year old rudy but i mean it, it it makes sense
7: Welcome back to part two, our first ever um sequel episode, which is kind of appropriate considering who we're talking about.
0: Michael Bay. So after Armageddon is Pearl Harbor.
9: Is it true? men are still trapped alive inside the Arizona. We can hear
8: tapping from inside the hole. We're doing everything we can to get to them, but they're 40 feet below water.
9: We've been trained to think that we're invincible. And now our proudest ships has been destroyed by an enemy we considered inferior. We're on the ropes, gentlemen. That's exactly why we have to strike back now. We're preparing an attack against the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, sir. To I'm keep our talking s- about hitting the heart of Japan, the way they have hit us.
8: Mr. President, Pearl Harbor caught us unawares because we didn't face facts. This isn't a time for ignoring them again. The Army Air Corps has long-range bombers, but no place to launch them. Midway is too far, and Russia won't allow us to launch a raid from there. Admiral, Navy's planes are small. They carry light loads and have a short range. We'd have to get them within a few hundred miles of Japan and therefore risk our carriers. And if we lose our carriers, we'll have no shield against invasion. Does anyone in this room
9: think that victory is possible without facing danger? We are at war.
8: Of course there's a risk. But consider the risk, Mr. President. If the Japanese invade us right now, they would penetrate as far as Chicago before we could stop them. Gentlemen,
9: most of you did not know me when I had the use of my legs. I was strong and proud and arrogant. Now I wonder every hour of my life why God put me into this chair. But when I see defeat in the eyes of my countrymen, in your eyes right now, I start to think that maybe he brought me down for times like these when we all need to be reminded who we truly are, that we will not give up
8: or give in. Mr. President, with all respect, sir, what you're asking can't be done.
9: Get back, George. Get back. Do not tell me
0: it can't be done. And knowing that, like, in the future, Michael Bay and James Cameron will talk a lot, I feel like Pearl Harbor was, in Michael Bay's world, was supposed to be his Titanic, which, this is 2001, there are probably movie theaters that are still showing Titanic (laughs) on their screens still, you know, even though it's been two to three years, because Titanic was just the biggest, one of the biggest movies of all time. And so this is kind of the same formula where you have a, a horrible event that happens in history. History, and to tell the story, you interweave a love story throughout it. And this love story is a love triangle of Josh Hartnett, Kate Beckinsale, and Ben Affleck around Pearl Harbor. The research that I did, it seemed like more Michael Bay-isms of he was very he was a dictator on set. But in the same instance, the set seemed crazy, like they had actual P-40 fireplanes. One producer, his description was, One day I was on the way to meeting with Michael on a battleship at Fort Island complete Bayham. i passed a squadron of zeros chasing two p40 fighter planes 40 feet above the deck guns blazing followed by the camera ship then watched fireballs exploding on a nearby fry as burning stuntmen leaped into the water then saw another zero come around and buzz our battleship as cuba gooding jr fired back with a 50 caliber 15 feet over my head and it wasn't even 10 a.m yet it seems like the set was crazy it seemed like michael bay kind of do you ever see like aviator with a uh, leonardo DiCaprio? about Howard Hughes? I did not see it. I'm aware of it. Howard Hughes was famous for being like, we need everything perfect, and you know, obviously back in those days you had to use real planes and whatnot and it was very minimal CGI and whatnot, and it seems like kind of the Pearl Harbor set was a little bit similar, where he was trying to get everything, and it's probably from the James Cameron world of trying to get it as realistic as possible. Mm -hmm. One of the critiques from our man Roger Ebert that really pissed off michael bay is a uh, michael bay on roger ebert said he commented on tv that bombs don't fall like that does he actually think we didn't do didn't research every nook and cranny of how armor piercing bombs fell he's watched too many movies he thinks they fall flat armor piercing bombs fall straight down that's the way it was designed but he's on air pontificating giving the wrong information and that's insulting so this is when he starts fighting back with the critics too which is not going to earn him any favors no i like that he said roger ebert has seen too many movies because
7: <laughs> I feel like a lot of people say that about um, like Michael Bay and Michael Bay's kind of like sensibilities and Michael Bay's fans. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, it's ridiculous. You've seen too many movies. That's a very like condescending thing to say, or at least when I, I every time I've heard it said, it's it's meant in a condescending way.
0: But this is where the first bit of misogyny happens with Kate Beckinsale on Pearl Harbor when he said that she needs to work out, which he, I think he tells every actor. And this, this is before Underworld, Kate Beckinsale. So I don't think she. Will was she was about to do serendipity she was kind of like a romantic lead on most of her movies then he did an interview and what he said was i didn't want someone who was too beautiful women feel disturbed when they see someone's too pretty i'm not saying kate's not pretty all right she's very funny could hang out with the guys she's not so neurotic about everything like some actresses when you look at titanic kate winslet is pretty but not overwhelmingly beautiful that makes it work better Hmm. not a great thing to say no
7: Kate Beckinsale is obviously a very pretty woman. So I find anyone, (laughs) I'd find, what'd you say? I
0: said gorgeous. Oh,
7: so I find, I mean, so my, my, I guess my point is that I feel I I would be confused to find anyone who had like a gripe with her being the leading lady.
0: Like, (laughs) who's that guy (laughs) that's upset that Kate Beckinsale is the leading lady? I mean, Uh, I think the only thing that could be is like she just didn't do anything, you know, like this was her first big leap. He was probably answering it about a bunch of people concerning the fact that josh hartnett was he's never been somebody's like favorite i remember he was finally getting accolades when he did a penny dreadful which was a tv show about like a horror tv show Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like Josh Hartnett. Like I liked him since like the faculty. But Kate Beckinsale was just kind of doing the I think like the Pride and Prejudice type films, the Jane Austen novels, <laughs> until he, this. Did he deny saying that he told her to work out, or was that like a? No, he never really walks back anything that he says. No, oh, this is sounding like an apologist, but he told Ben Affleck to work out, didn't he? Right, well, Will Smith. You know, like <laughs> thinking about it, like I was like, I don't know, is it? Yes, it is. Misog if you do it against women but if you do it against everybody does it take the misogyny away like that was probably my thought yesterday evening after we recorded was if you hate everybody equally (laughs) (laughs) but if he says bad things about everybody is he still a misogynist or is he just a person that is blunt and doesn't really walk back his words and a dick Kind
7: of. Right. I don't know. I think that's a whole other podcast that's out of our league. Where Pearl Harbor, I remember, was, I do remember that it got slammed because it was um, like a bloated two and something hours long. It was, you know, it couldn't decide whether it was a love story or um, an action movie. Um, And there were just a lot of, like, that was probably the first. Um, time I remember like the critics being as vocal and as venomous toward a Michael bay movie up until that
0: point one of the things that was against it was it's, it was overly patriotic um, oh, and oh. then was and then of course when 9/11 happened then we were grasping for patriotism and so people flocked to the movie I just think i think it's a great like when i rewatched it two nights ago it's it's a really good battle scene of pearl harbor i think what i could do without is its third act because in the third act they go to bomb japan for payback and i just think i think if he found a way to end it on a hopeful yet sad note that it would have made the movie at least two points higher on you know any critics scale instead of finding it vengeful yeah finding like a happy vengeful note okay would just be my uh, studio rewrite <laughs> i mean that's i mean
7: and i'm sure that in doing that anyone involved knew that it was going to be divisive what came after pearl harbor bad boys 2 okay 2003
11: who the fuck are you i'm mr Bennett. i'm reggie what you doing here I came to take out megan what i came to take out megan how old are you 15 minutes of been here. Motherfucker, you look thirty. Show me some ID. I don't have none on me. You don't have no idea? Get your ass up against that wall. What the is your problem? You think you know it all? You know young Thundercats. You got joints on you? Mom. You smoke that shit? No, sir. You trying to get my daughter high? You smoke Mark. that shit? Nigga, who that is? It's Reggie. Who the fuck is Reggie? He to take Megan out. What you want, nigga? I'm here to take his daughter out. What's your name, Reggie? Well, I no, heard the motherfucker say your name, Reggie. You want to take a Megan out? Yes, sir. How old is you? Fifteen. Shit, nigga, you at least thirty. This is Did my. You fight. Yeah. You can fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, you motherfucking! You can't fight. Look at Mike, you. Look, no, I yeah, want to nigga, I know if the nigga. want to know somebody gonna take my niece Godfather. out. I want to know if the Godfather. nigga can fight. Somebody okay? might come say something. Hey. The nigga can't fight. She can't go. This is Maker's Godfather. Okay, he just got out the joint. Why you putting all my business in the street? Why you putting? I just got out of jail and I ain't going back. I ain't good. going back. What's wrong with you? No, no. Acting all scared, nigga. You ain't never seen a gun before. Stop pointing the gun at the boy, man. Nigga, look. Don't you. Disrespect right. in front of company. All right, let the gun go off. You don't nigga, have no, You no, a no. big old, tall, no. ludicrous looking motherfucker, ain't you? You rap? No. Move, nigga. Get out of hey. the way. Hey. If I okay. see you on the highway, hey. get hey. the hey. fuck out hey. of hey. my way. Hey. hey, Mike! Now listen, have my daughter home at 10.01. If she ain't home at 10.01, I'm in the car, OK? Lock loaded and hunting your motherfucking ass down. Do you hear me? And, and I'm going fuck up. up, Reggie. And if I'm there, you know what it's gonna be? Chitty, chitty, bang, bang, nigga. That's what it's gonna be. Marcus! Oh, Reggie, baby, I am so sorry. Please forgive Megan's dad and his silly friend. You a virgin? Yes. It? All right, keep it that way. Ain't gonna be no fucking that night. Baby, the red shirt's nice. I like that. You guys have a good time. You ever made love to a man? No. You want to? No, sir. Hey,
0: have a good time, baby. Go. So, so, an article comes out now that uh, I think is in the Hollywood Reporter, but somebody put, Is Michael Bay the Devil? is the headline of it. Quentin Tarantino calls Michael Bay and says, Don't worry, last year they called me the Antichrist. And that was his pep talk. <laughs> That's fair. What what was the basis for calling Michael Bay or for
7: questioning whether Michael Bay was the devil?
0: His style moving and like how he is on set. You know, people know him kind of as a like a Napoleon director who's just trying to get all those ducks in a row. I feel like I keep using that saying
7: (laughs) ducks in a row. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. The whole Ben Affleck thing with getting his teeth capped and everything. It was more like matter of fact. As opposed to, like, can you believe Michael
0: Bay said this? What an asshole. It wasn't ever a story, I don't think. Right. Like, this is why Ben Affleck has new teeth. <laughs> well,
7: we'll, uh, we'll have to wait till we get to Transformers, and because and I think Megan Fox is the one that blew up every that, that whole interaction or whatever it was between them blew up and, and sort of discredited and demonized Michael Bay as, like, you know, type one misogynist.
0: And that's why I'm glad that we're on Bad Boys 2 now because Gabriel Union stars <laughs> in it. And the one. One thing I love about Gabrielle Union is she's a straight shooter, like, you know, exactly where she's coming from. She was just fired from one of those reality shows because she I forget who it was. So I don't want to name names, but somebody on there made an anti Asian joke.
7: That's right. And she. Yeah, that's right. I don't want to speak without knowing it but i remember that she spoke up against it and got herself fired
0: so gabriel union's quote on working Wait, with I michael mean, bay
7: it, is it gabriel or Gabrielle? i
0: always thought it was gabriel i don't know miss union okay great <laughs> <laughs> song uh, on michael bay says you know when people talk about the very first time they did drugs being in a Michael Bay movie was like my drug. It's like I'm chasing the dragon, and I've been chasing that experience ever since. So it sounds like wow, she loved working with Michael Bay, you know? Well, see, that's and that's another thing that I can't, like, I get that I
7: know nothing about the grueling life of being an actor in a Michael Bay movie, but, like, if you're on set with giant robots and fun, fast cars, I feel like it would be like spending a day at an amusement park. <laughs> so, like, I'd be interested to know why an actor who agreed to be in a Michael Bay movie wouldn't love that.
0: Right. You know what I mean? This movie gets a lot of hate from critics. I thought you were gonna say Cuba, but go on. No critics, and really, a lot of the hate has to do with like the overuse, or what they call it, or what they quote-unquote say is the overuse of like the N word. It's always very weird to me when white people just comment on the Ed word in general. Like, I, I, I have no opinion, I guess, on it. Like either way, but when, and this is one of the main reasons why I stopped listening to the other movie podcast that I was listening to because it was just three white guys guys in a room saying that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence are using the N-words. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is not something to focus on considering the fact that Bad Boys 2, in some of the walks of life that I've had to do, uh, in commercial kitchens and whatnot, Bad Boys 2 is one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted movie with my African-American friends. It's like the Step brothers. <laughs> the, the one scene that gets vilified the most is the one scene that I feel is quoted the most, which is the scene with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith is at where, the front
7: door. Yeah, where the kid comes to take her out on the date.
0: Yeah, critics <laughs> hate that scene people love it
7: <laughs> I haven't seen Bad Boys 3 was that kid in Bad Boys three did he come back in Bad Boys three
0: he does and no. like the audience cheered for him when when he was on screen right nice. um he does, he has about the same amount of lines I feel like <laughs> does he still look
7: um, like 20 plus years older than he really is?
0: Yeah. Nice. Well, you could definitely tell he's like in a military garb and so you could cut it but his face is still that long face, you know? Well, Uh,
7: I mean, he was a very distinct looking character in that movie so that's that's funny that they brought him back.
0: Um, I guess uh, Michael Bay didn't tell him that Martin Lawrence was going to have a gun or Will Smith was going to have a gun in that scene and so like and he told Will Smith like, wave it. Wave it around. Just try to get under his. I guess Martin Lawrence Lawrence's like bodyguard or whatnot told the kid not to look Martin Lawrence in the eye like they <laughs> they really did I mean, a lot of psychological I mean, behind the scenes before that scene. Nice. I don't understand why
7: any bit of potentially offensive language has to be particularly magnified in a Michael Bay movie when there are plenty of other movies made by plenty of other directors who say very similar things.
0: There was a comment I think it was Armageddon because they were doing Jerry Bruckheimer's Armageddon And that's how they were publicizing it. And they're asking Michael Bay, like, does that bother you? Because this is a Michael Bay directed film. And he was like, No, it doesn't. You know, like, I'm just here to entertain the people. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like Bad Boys 2 is a Michael Bay presents film. It's a Will Smith and Marlon Lawrence vehicle, you know?
7: I think even at that time, like, I I don't think, to be honest, I don't think I really got on the Michael Bay bandwagon, the bandwagon. And what I mean by that is I don't know that I... Because there were only one, two, three, four... Are we up to four films or five films? We're now at five. Five. And three. only three of those, Bad Boys, The Rock, and Armageddon, were ones that I sort of, like, invested myself in with a kind of concerted effort. So I don't know that, like... I went to see a movie because it was Michael Bay until bad boys three. Like I remember two uh, two, bad boys two. I mean, You know, it was one of those things where I wasn't entirely loyal to the Bad Boys franchise. I knew I enjoyed the movie. I thought Will Smith and Mark Lawrence were funny. I thought, you know, it was a good, just a good overall movie that I really enjoyed. But I don't know if I would have rushed to see it if it wasn't combined with the fact that Michael Bay was directing it again. I don't know, I guess in my mind, that Michael Bay had that clout until this point in time. And what, what I mean by that is like, I wouldn't go see a movie strictly because it was Michael Bay. Like I saw The Island, because it was a Michael Bain.
11: No, don't don't shoot! He's my clone! I'm Tom Lincoln! What? No, I'm Tom Lincoln! He's lying! Shut up! I own you! He's the clone- I'm Tom Lincoln! Don't point the gun at me, you frickin' idiot! He's the clone! Look at that! I'm not a clone! I'm Tom! No, I'm Tom! He's lying! it at him! No! I'm not! Shut up! Shut up! You're a clone! Shut up! I'm Tom Lincoln! I'm
7: I, I really didn't, and I'm, I'm not super fond of that movie, but I, I could kind of care less about, you know, Scarlett Johansson. So there wasn't anyone in that movie that I, or any, any really element of the plot that I was like, oh, I got to see this. It's going to blow my mind. But I was like, oh, it's a Michael Bay movie. This will be fun. Right. So, And it was. It was just kind of not as fun as some of the other ones. Who was the main bad guy
0: in that movie? Sean Bean.
7: Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Sean Bean. Old (laughs) Sean Bean. The patron (laughs) saint of Second Chance Cinema.
0: That was the next movie. Um, And I think, really, that movie just suffered from... That's another one of just not knowing what it was going to be. Like, it could have been a really creepy science fiction movie, and then it kind of devolves into a, like, a, just an action film move. Of-
7: Here's what I was thinking about with the island last night, um, because I knew we were going to talk about it today. If you took the plot, the concept, and the, the overall presentation of themes and, like, you know, thinking elements of equilibrium and then swapped it with the aesthetic, of the island which is to say made it i mean i guess directed it by michael bay i feel like those two movies were kind of like a venn diagram of each other but the middle was just not not there enough yeah remember when we talked about equilibrium we were like it was dark and it was a depressing movie like it was sad it was like but it was a thinker and it made you like really contemplate a lot of the themes that they came up with in the movie the island on the other hand not so much a thinker still very much i mean you know raised questions about like morality and what represents a human and all that kind of thing but aesthetically, that was a beautiful movie to watch. Like, I remember this sweeping shot, like, when all the, um, the clones are let out of their facility. And there's just, like, this big... It was almost like, a, I don't know if it was, like, a helicopter or a drone shot of them all in their, like, white outfits, like, clamoring up this hilltop. And it was just, like, very, like... I mean, it was, like... Like, it made you... I remember watching it. Like, it made you... It, watching it felt like taping, taking a deep breath. And that aesthetic... Um, along with the car chase which is like a really underrated part of that movie like a phenomenal car chase and then just the whole you know the whole look of the i forget what it was called the center that they're all trapped in the um i don't remember where all the clones live and they get called up from, from day to day that whole element of the movie was it was all just beautiful and like you said i think it suffered from wanting to know whether or wanting trying to decide whether it was like a really cerebral movie or a popcorn action movie?
0: Yeah probably be the first Michael Bay film and this is number six I think where it's like meh probably I own it but like I don't know how much I would recommend it to people just because it is kind of it's not clean it wasn't executed I think as well as it could have but you're absolutely right that I feel like across the board with every Michael Bay film it looks good mm-hmm. like if you want a movie to put on in the background and, and steal some ganders at it mm-hmm. this is a good one so they ask Scarlett Johansson what do you think about about working with Michael Bay and she says he's one of about two or three people that could do action and sci-fi right and she said he was sensitive to her needs when she'd be losing steam after doing take after take of a tough scene instead of just being loud and boisterous and rude I don't hear anything um, vile there. And you always have to take every everything with a great, because everybody is playing a part in these like press junkets and what, you know, like she might not want to badmouth the director. And nobody wants to badmouth the director. Like those, everybody's kind of working with each other. So that was one of the things that like Shia LaBeouf said about Megan Fox's. You just, Michael Bay was the captain of the ship and she was badmouthing the captain in public when she made the, the Nazi Napoleon comments in Transformers, which is the next. Movie,
2: how hey, about you let me drive? Oh,
7: no, 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 no. This is not a toy. These 22s, I don't want you grinding
2: them. No. Uh, why doesn't my little bunny just hop in the back seat? Oh, oh god, I can't even tell you how much I'm not your little bunny. <laughs> okay, you'll call me.
12: Who's gonna drive me? Shut up. Hey man, what's wrong with your
4: radio? I'm driving home
3: tonight.
2: What? She's an evil job concubine, man. Let her hitchhike.
3: She lives ten miles from here. Okay, it's my only chance. You gotta be understanding here, all right? All
2: right. Well, we put her in the back. I'll be quiet. Did you say put her in the back? I,
4: I called you,
3: Miles. Up. I'm not putting her in the back. You gotta get out of my car right it now. It's a party foul. What rules? Uh, our bros before hoes. Miles, I'm begging you to get out of my car. Okay? You can't do this to you me. You gotta get out of my car right now. Who's gonna come around? Kayla! It's Sam. Break. With Ricky. I hope didn't get you stranded or anything. You sure? So listen, I was wondering if I could ride you home. I mean, uh, give you a ride home in my car to your house. There you go. <clears throat> so, uh... <clears throat> No no, 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 no. Come on. Sorry, just working out the kinks, you know, it's a new car. Oh. This is, this is radio is like, just you no know, old radio too,
7: so. Look, this isn't
3: something, you know. To stop. look i wouldn't try this on you you know this is like a, a romantic romantic thing that i'm not trying to do you know not that you're not worthy of trying something like this no, on I'm, I'm a friend of yours i'm not a romantic friend but uh, you know, romantic friends do this i mean I, I'm, I'm not that that friend i mean we i, I could be just
11: pop the hood
7: now that uh, that's a good segue then because that whole thing from what i remember was more offensive and incendiary to steven spielberg being one of the executive producers of transformers so when she came out with the critique of michael bay comparing him to hitler and the nazi regime on a movie set i I just remember seeing steven spielberg's name a lot next to the reasons why she was i don't did she get fired or did she walk off or what happened
0: she wasn't invited back for the the third one but steven spielberg and like everybody has a different story of what happened but steven michael bay says as soon as she made the nazi comment steven spielberg came up to him and said you have to let her go
7: like i remember hearing it too and not thinking that it would because i remember not thinking it was like a like he'd been personally offended spielberg but more like this is bad news for anything she's associated
0: with, right and she's megan you know like she's megan fox she wasn't making the movie there was no human actor in transformers that people were coming to see Transformers for.
7: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Her character was expendable because clearly they replaced her in the third one without blinking an eye. And then eventually replaced him in the fourth one, same way. So, but yeah, that's a good point. Nobody went to see Transformers for the human actors. And that was one of the big critiques of Transformers, I remember, and that whole series, was that there was too much of the humanity in it. Like, there was too many... There there weren't enough fighting robots. You know, there weren't enough Transformers. It was mostly... Shia LaBeouf's kind of coming of age story with his pet Autobot and whatever. But personally, that didn't bother me. Like, I didn't walk, I walked out of seeing the first Transformers movie, went to my car, and like for a split second as I was looking at my car, cause you know, my old car looked like a cartoon pretty much anyway. At mm. my old car, I was like, for a split second, I was like, turn into a robot. <laughs> And I thought, like, wow, no movies ever made me feel like that specifically, but also in the grander sense of, like, suspending the disbelief, like, please turn into a robot. <laughs> so that, was my, that was my endorsement of, of Transformers. Anybody asked what I thought of it. I was like, I walked out to the parking lot and I genuinely hoped my car would turn into a robot. So I think Transformers is just, there are, there are five movies, which probably, I mean, those have to have grossed multiple billions of dollars. Mm. And five movies, that's almost $1. Th- third of michael bay's entire directorial career right so that's more than one third i think yeah that's more than one third of his entire directorial career and i think anytime you get into a movie that's past the original trilogy you get into the parts where things get muddled and you can't remember characters because there's just so much content going on and that's i think what happened when you got into the mark Wahlberg transformers like it had the novelty of mark Wahlberg. it had the um I thought Kelsey Grammer was sweet in that movie as the bad guy. Though it was sad to see Frasier being a dick. Like a real dick, not like a Frasier elitist cultural dick, but like a bad villain guy. That's when the Transformers franchise kind of like started to feel like a spinoff of itself, I guess. And the cool thing, though, is the last Transformers, which was The Last Knight, right, mm-hmm. had Mark Wahlberg, I remember <laughs> Merlin in the beginning, and Anthony Hopkins, which so like, you have to wonder, and I'm so curious to know the conversation between Michael Bay and Anthony Hopkins, what went on like to convince Anthony Hopkins to be in this movie. That movie to me is completely completely forgettable in the grander scheme of the Transformers cinematic universe. But Anthony Hopkins is a very highly respected actor, and he had a big role in it. Right, right. And by this point, because when did when did the last Transformers come out? That wasn't that long ago. 2017. So Michael Bay has well established himself. The pros and the cons. You know, people know what they know about Michael Bay. So you have to wonder. Like, I I would just be very curious to know what the conversation was between highly respected Anthony Hopkins and now pretty much universally critically bashed Michael Bay that got them to work together.
0: I think like we could talk about Transformers like as a group, but the fight Transformers performers. Spielberg had to talk Michael Bay into it because he couldn't think of a better person to turn a truck into a robot than Michael Bay, which is With the first good one. on Spielberg's part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's Michael Bay wasn't trying to get the Transformers property. Transformers was trying to get Michael Bay.
7: That's a perfect testament to his genius because, I don't know, another loose definition of genius is that you're the best at something. You know, I think people would agree that Michael Jordan was a basketball genius, Bill Gates a uh, software genius, whatever. So Michael Bay being the only guy who can make Transformers work as a movie. But that's a pretty big testament, I think, to his aptitudes and his talent
0: yeah his visualization for complex action scenes why didn't um, he do that he wasn't a Transformers guy he didn't kind of understand it it wasn't until the screenwriter co- came up to him and said it's really about a boy who's really obsessed with getting a car so they mm-hmm. put the human element into it for Michael Bay and he was like oh all, right, all right so they kind of wrapped you opened it perfectly with saying like the the critique was there was too much humanity in it and I feel like the Sam Witwicky character with Bumble be and megan fox is like the first time michael bay really goes into a coming of age story with a boy and a car you know and and everything he probably is a lot of the sam whitwicky character
7: the human element of transformers one was it's a boy and his dog story i mean it's a boy and his companion that he meets that's you know, it's like fish out of water a little bit. And you're right, he becomes an unlikely hero by helping the Transformers save the world. And I think that, that was lost a little bit in the second one because by then he was... Like this, not so much a an unknowing hero, but more like a reluctant hero, I guess. Like an, like an actively reluctant hero. Like, I don't want to do this. This isn't me anymore. I don't want to, I'm not part of this. I just want to go to college and all that kind of stuff. And then in the third one, might be my favorite. That felt like a straight up military movie. I felt like I was watching something like Black Hawk Down. Like at the <laughs> end, when they do the whole siege on Chicago and it's like they have to infiltrate Chicago past like the Decepticon perimeter and work their way up to steal all the pillars and stuff like that like that was thinking action I guess than just like popcorn action I I really liked that one a lot plus Leonard Nimoy was sweet as uh, Sentinel Prime but whatever
0: so when these movies are coming out like now you got the studio heavily involved and so they're like all right, well this movie is going to come out July of 2011 you know so not only do you have the stress of putting together a good movie but from the from origination of idea you have a deadline set for like two years to put all these moving pieces together uh-huh. the second movie happens or is slated to happen and then the writer strike happens so there's that period there where a lot of people a lot of properties can blame i sincerely like the second one as well in the same instance i truly enjoy shia labeouf work and i like to see him on screen But Revenge of the Fallen comes out, in Transformers is 2007, Revenge of the Fallen is 2009, Dark of the Moon is 2011. So it's like, bam, bam, bam. And with the Dark of the Moon, you could tell that Michael Bay does Transformers 1 likes what he did likes his work and the studio of course loves the money that's coming in for it and so they go you're going to do the sequel and so everybody comes back for the sequel except for the fact that the writer's strike happens and the writers for the sequel say that michael bay put them into like a hotel down the street from him so he could just walk over and just Randomly show up in their hotel room and say, Are you working? Like, where are you at with the script? We need this script. Like, so he kind of sequestered the writers for himself. And then with the third one, he was like, All right, I need to take a break and just kind of reset my mind or whatnot. And, you know, kind of told the studio, Yeah, we could do a third one, but we'll do it in twenty 20- July of 2012. And then the studio went to the media and said, Yeah, the third one's coming out July of 2011. So they forced his hand with the third one. Let me ask you this
7: as someone with more experience in the industry than i have what is a director's role in actually writing and producing the script
0: right uh, directors have final say director takes it and goes okay this is the movie i want to make and most directors will be putting in their own notes and whatnot without the writer's input at all and then the studio goes we'll let you get away with this we'll let you get away with this we want this changed and a director based off of uh really who he is like usually probably probably like the first movies or whatnot. If he hasn't cemented himself, we'll have to do everything the studio says. But as you get bigger and we, what we're always talking about with Michael Bay and Quentin Tarantino and whatnot, you have these directors who have enough clout and enough ego to tell the studios, nope, this is my movie. You know, like there's not going not gonna to be a director's cut of Transformers 3 because what comes out is my cut. Interesting. Okay.
7: And so as you're saying that, I remember one of the big critiques of all, I mean, I guess Michael Bay's movies. In general but all the transformers movies specifically was like you'd read a lot of reviews that were like just a two-hour fest of boom bang pow explosion robot car chase and basically like distilling it down to those very like visceral elements of Michael Bay's movies. So my question would be, why is that bad? Why is that a legitimate critique? Or is it a legitimate critique of a film?
0: I don't think it is. It's his film. Like, I think if you go to a Michael Bay film and you're pissed off that something blew up, why did you go to a Michael Bay film?
7: <laughs> you know, <but> I mean, <laughs> that's the, the comparison I let off this podcast with was like, that's like going into Taco Bell and complaining that the cheeseburgers are bad.
0: That's like going to a four- film and being like, oh my gosh, Everything has subtitles. Like but the other thing with the Transformers movies is they just keep making more and more money. I think Transformers 4, which I can't recommend 4 and 5 I can't recommend to anybody, but 4 and 5 did the best overseas in Asia well, that's because good. Michael Bay is Michael Bayist is China's right. second coming of a director. Well, he and
7: and most I think like the later half of the fourth movie was all in China, right? Um, mm-hmm. And like I said I don't quite remember the fifth one. This thing about transformers and i don't know that a ton of people know this is that the toys came first before the media properties so the toys existed as these cars that turn into robots and planes that turn into robots and robots that turn into planes and cars and then they were like this is a great idea to make a tv show out of cartoon out of so the media came after the the toys which And the media is really what established the lore of the Transformers, like gave Optimus Prime his characteristics and gave Optimus Prime his personality and his voice and his presence as basically like a pop culture icon. So Michael Bay was, I feel like the movies took that one step further. It was like the toys, then the cartoon and the comics, then the movies Sort of really just built on this kind of like backwards universe because usually it's the other way around. It's the mm. movie, cartoon, then the toys, or the toys and then the cartoon sometimes but this was like i don't want to say it was unprecedented unprecedented because that's you know maybe giving a little too much gravitas to the to the situation but like to take the next step of a almost universally beloved property like the transformers cartoon and comics and toys and then evolve that that's i feel like the critiques of him disrespecting the transformers universe or whatever i feel like those were really unfounded because he didn't even though the cars and the truck modes looked different than the original cartoon which I could kind of either take or leave like I love the old square front semi Optimus Prime, but I thought the new Optimus Prime looked pretty cool, too. If the first one didn't exist, I'd have no problem with the second one, I guess is what I'm saying. But people were really like up in arms about that. And it's that whole thing of like, oh, you've ruined my childhood. And uh, but it's not your childhood anymore. It's someone else's childhood. That's why kids now play with the new Optimus Prime toy that they got when that movie came out, because they
0: loved it so much. And, you know, Michael Bay is getting all these critiques of being a second-rate director. The Transformers movies, despite how, you know, they're supposed to be entertaining children and everything like that, there's three directors that are behind the scenes helping Michael Bay with the Transformers movies. James Cameron comes out, and one wants to help him with the 3D imagery. He goes, you know what Transformers needs? It needs these 3D cameras, because James Cameron is an auteur when it comes to developing new filmmaking, you know, technology. technology. Yeah, that's what he's doing with Avatar, you know, and he's always been on that. So he wanted Transformers 3 to have the 3D technology and had to walk Michael Bay how to use it. George Lucas comes out, probably with, you know, we have Steven Spielberg producing it. George Lucas comes out and goes, hey, if you're going to do these movies, let me teach you about getting a little slice of the pie when it comes to the toys and everything like that. Right. So now James K- or uh, Michael Bay is making 15 percent on all the toys that are sold in relation to the movie based off of George Lucas helping him with that business plan. It, um, Your yeah. favorite director likes Michael Bay. <laughs> it's, That's kind of what I want to like point well, out.
7: That should be the tagline of these episodes, is believe it or not, your favorite director loves Michael Bay.
0: You have Aaron Sorkin, you- Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, all these people are Michael Bay fans. George, Lee, like, it's just incredible you- that not people even- like to shit on him.
7: Not even, like, fans, but, like, defenders of Michael Bay. Yeah. Like, saying the exact same thing that his that the stuffy critics sing the exact opposite of what the stuffy critics are saying. Let's let's cut here. We'll call this our second intermission and then we'll come back and wrap up with Pain and Gain, 13 Hours and Six Underground, and then call it a bay, right? Call it a bay. All right, we will be back with part three on Second Chance Cinema.
8: <laughs> Scott. Do you think sometimes then that, maybe particularly in the sci-fi area, that the CGI, the effects and stuff, has got over the top. Yeah, the, 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 the cart is before the horse. The horse is the story, but suddenly the horse is secondary to the cart. So you're watching certain things occur. That said, you know, Michael Bay's, I mean this, digital masterpieces, I mean I mean, that, is the, the big um, digital film, with the, what do you call it? Oh, Transformers. Transformers. They are, that's hard to do. And so people may laugh or love it. I admire it because I haven't got the patience to do that. Or, but he's got that kind of brain that makes it work and it's inordinately successful. So that's the only film I can think of where digital process is
1: worthwhile. You're breaking up! Michael has a top-notch, world-class crew. He readily admits that. They're pros.
4: There's a reason why Michael brings all these people back. A, they're the best in the world at what they
6: do, and B, they have this crazy ability to put up with Michael Bay.
12: This has to be
4: all grips on hand with this thing, it's yes, not to move under the tail. You understand me? Yes, sir. All right, am I very uh, clear? Yeah. Good. He has to be General Patton. It's the only That's way going. to get these movies done, is to have that mentality. I don't think you could be a sensitive, sweet guy and get all the cogs moving. You couldn't. Working with Michael is
5: tough. Working with Michael Bay, is it's not a picnic. Working with Michael Bay is difficult because
11: when you arrive to the set, as soon as my feet hit the cement, I mean, I'm off and running and we don't stop till we wrap.
6: He's not someone who's sort of interested in contemplating or reflecting, or let's just say goofing around. This pace, I love it.
4: <laughs> that's good. When you're in Las Vegas with Mark Wahlberg and Michael Bay, going to Ma- Las Vegas with Michael Bay is like double Las Vegas, I would think. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's Las Vegas. Yeah, he is. Yeah, that's right. He does. He's like the male representation of yeah. Las Vegas. What do you do? What what, what activities besides work, obviously?
10: Well, with Michael, well, we only went to Vegas for that, so oh, I didn't see the, much of yeah. him up there. And I saw him in uh, Chicago the other day for the opening of this film. But he's a piece of work. He's one of the great directors of all time. You got along with him. Oh, uh, wow, he's, he's
4: one of the great directors of all time. That's my phrase. Well, yeah. he's
10: got that uh, very American, let's go for it, you know, and you've got to be on the ball if you're working with Michael. Uh, he doesn't waste time. He wants it all now.
4: So the hey, way you I, like that.
10: Oh, it's terrific, yeah. He
4: he shot, one of the scenes I know, I think from the clip we're going to show, is it was shot at Stonehenge. Not a fake Stonehenge, not a CGI Stonehenge, but somehow he managed to get the Transformers
10: at Stonehenge. That's right. Uh, He got into Downing Street as well with the Prime Minister, but he he got that. He can do anything. How does it happen? How can he do that? He's Michael Bay. He has no fear. I'm sure he doesn't mind the story. He came into my trailer the morning. We were at Stonehenge. There's the real Stonehenge. Built 5,000 years ago. And there's another Stonehenge of the Art Department built down there in another field because we couldn't blow bombs up at the real one. Right. They so say Stonehenge, huh? Stonehenge, isn't that great? I said, yeah, fantastic. He said, well, We've got this uh, this one is ours, yeah. Ours is better than theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I
7: said,
10: only the American looks better. Yeah. He could be president
7: talking. We about are it. in the home stretch of second chance cinemas, review, dissection, expose, and overall defense of one of our favorite directors, Michael Bay. How are you feeling? Are you exhausted?
0: I am a little this is the most work i think we've put into an episode and i think it's but i think i think we've done it justice i think we've gotten there
7: well i believe one of our um special guests who you'll hear from later when we mentioned to him that it was going to be a two or three part episode he said well of course it is it's michael fucking bay speaking of special guests he's a friend of mine who i've known for um at least a decade longer than that he's a brilliant writer of all types. When I first knew him, he was. When I first met him, he was a brilliant magazine writer. Um, since then, he's gone on to write for TV, a lot of web content, movies, live TV stuff, and and he's published two books, Ocean of Storms and Zero Limit, which are both both available on Amazon and both sci-fi books that I really enjoyed. And I think I read through them in probably about five days, which is a, a speed record for me. So if you're a fan of sci-fi, definitely check those out. And when I spoke to him, Jeremy is what's his name. The,
0: okay, I was going to say, what's the author's name? So we- <laughs> oh, Hey, I
7: was getting there. I was getting there. When, when I spoke to him, Jeremy was very, uh, I was surprised to hear that most of the points he made in his argument are points that you and I have already covered, unbeknownst to him. Very mm-hmm. specifically, too. Like, almost freaky coincidental. We're going to play the interview with, with Jeremy. This is the author of, uh, again, Ocean of Storms and Zero Limit, talking about how awesome Michael Bay is. So I'm just going to lead in with the basic question we're here to discuss. Michael Bay, why do people hate him? Interesting question.
5: So I don't know entirely, although I think it's one of those, like, he's a director who's seen as uh, more style over substance but i think the hate really started and it became fashionable to hate him after pearl harbor that's how i've looked at it. like the michael bay curve or whatever it's sort of right. because you had bad boys that was well received and, and everybody liked it and it was not uncool to like it you had the rock that was a huge hit and was res, you know regarded as like a respectable uh, action movie and you had sean Connor nicholas cage who was at his peak at that time uh, then you had Armageddon, which maybe you might argue that could could have been the start of when the tables turned. I think the moon buggy or whatever jumping the, the uh, canyon on the asteroid and scenes like that kind of maybe started to turn people's opinions. But Armageddon was still a massive blockbuster when it came out. I think it may have even been the biggest movie that came out that year. I'd have to look at that, but I think it, I mean it was huge. But then... Pearl Harbor came out, and then after that, I don't think Michael Bay ever really fully recovered uh, and returned to kind of the um, the respectability that he had in the late 90s.
7: So actually, we posited sort of the same theory. We went through, like, as you described it, the curve where when did it become fashionable to hate Michael Bay? And Pearl Harbor was a big part of that. It's like the epicenter. And a part of Pearl Harbor had to do with reports from the set that he was a dick specifically to kate beckinsale since then there's been more talk about him and his uh proclivities on set that cast him in a very negative light you know obviously we're not there so we don't know the extent of the truth or or whatnot but all of these i guess allegations do you think that seems to overshadow his filmmaking ability?
5: Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think it's the fact that, um, cause like James Cameron has a reputation for being a dick too, but he doesn't get the hate that Michael Bay gets. And I think it's because his movies aren't as like over the top and flashy. Like if you look at Bad Boys 2, there's the shot with the camera that like goes between like two dozen girls' legs in the strip club, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> you know, like, it, like his movies are so crazy and over the top. And, and sometimes he leans into that reputation of being like a misogynist and a guy who's really more about style than substance mm-hmm. and kind of I think I think Bad Boys 2 specifically was done almost as a middle finger to all the critics right. who trashed Pearl Harbor it was like okay you think I'm a pig who can only <clears throat> make movies with hot girls and hot cars and I'm going to do that as loud and as obnoxiously as I can so it you know, almost
7: kind of embraced being a parody of himself to a point
5: yeah I think so I don't because I think Pearl Harbor was like in his mind it was his evolution as a filmmaker it was like <clears throat> again comparing into James Cameron James Cameron and, you know, the, the Terminator movies, uh, Aliens, uh, True Lies, and then it was like, now I'm going to make my Oscar movie. I'm going to make Titanic, and, and it, right. you know, it, it blew up and it was huge, and he you know um, won the Oscar and everything. So I think Michael Bay was kind of maybe in some ways following the same trajectory of like now I'm going to make my serious you know uh, drama and and my epic historical romance in in the vein of Titanic, and, and that didn't quite pan out. So I think maybe in some ways he is kind of embracing that and being like, okay, if this is what I am, then I'm going to be that turned up to eleven, you know, in every movie I make.
7: Okay, so follow up question uh, earlier, Spro and I. I talked about a director like Stanley Kubrick being known for, you know, his high art style, sophistication, um, intelligence, all those things. Um, Yet there are plenty of similar tales of him also being a dick on set. Sets uh, and stories like From the Shining where he treated his actors. um, I'm thinking of, you know, stories of Shelley Duvall being like pushed to the brink of breakdowns and yet he's sort of more revered as like an auteur, bringing out the best in his actors, and Michael Bay is not. Why is that?
5: Uh, I think it's ultimately because the finished product is is sort of perceived differently. Like a, a movie like 2001: A Space Odyssey is never going to be compared to Armageddon, you know, because the content, you know, is is sort of more perceived as being intellectual and kind of stimu- intellectually stimulating, uh, you know, and kind of deep and meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. movie like Doctor Strangelove is seen as this very biting war satire, or even The Shining is kind of the thinking man's horror. Movie movie whereas Michael Bay's movies are you know designed to be seen by the largest audience possible and consumed by as many people as possible so immediately it's seen as a difference between high-class dining and fast food I guess in okay. the eyes of the critics I think I think well, today it's like if you're entertained by movie I mean I love 2001 A Space Odyssey and I love Armageddon you know in, right. for different reasons you know they're, they're they're not the same movie they don't stimulate the same centers of, of your brain but they're both certainly entertaining uh you know movies to watch for their own reasons. Michael Bay's never made a secret about what his movies are all about and even the times, I think Pain and Gain was another attempt from him to be taken more seriously as a director and I mean that movie was, was cr- had crazy stuff and people, ooh, body parts getting barbecued, all kinds of insane stuff but it's like, you know, Michael Bay can't help but be Michael Bay, no matter okay. what type of movie he's doing. Six Underground I think was definitely the, the same thing, I mean it, it was a, maybe a little bit more of a return to kind of the type of action movies he did in the 90s but still, I mean that, was, that movie was way over the top in so many different regards. So he's never made an apology for who he is. So for right. anyone to go into a Michael Bay movie and go, you know, what the heck is this all about? You know, Why is everything blowing up? And why are there so many Ferraris? And why are there so many girls? And why is everything in slow motion? And why does everything happen at sunset? You know? <laughs> you get what you you get what you pay for and i don't think he ever made he's ever made a secret about the kind of movies that he makes even when he tries to do something different
7: we found out that no matter who your favorite director is no matter how highly respected and arthouse and intellectual that director has been perceived as being chances are that directors had good things to say about michael bay we found quotes from james cameron um, spielberg david fincher and others who basically echoed those same sentiments that his talent can't be ignored uh, and actors too like sean connery have come to his defense so his peers um respect and not just respect but endorse him why won't critics
5: mm, yeah I- I think it's that his movies, on the surface, are very easy to dismiss. And they're very easy to just say, it's big, dumb action, and there's no substance, and there's nothing to to take away. And that became easier once he started getting into the Transformers franchise, which are, you know, admittedly harder movies to defend as the the series continues. Right. It's easy to look at a Michael Bay movie and say it's just noise and chaos and violence and uh, sex jumbled together for... You know, in in two hour in a two hour uh, stream, you know. So okay. I think, that, I think that's what it is. it's just like. You can look at a Michael Bay movie and kind of whittle it down to its base components, and and then say that's all his movies are. Right. And okay. He certainly made movies that are, I think fall into that category, particularly the latter Transformer movies, which even I, who was a, who was a defender of the uh, originals, kind of after a while, I don't think anybody could really make a compelling case for those last couple of ones. Right. But uh, you know, I think that that's what it is. I think it's like you could easily. Look at his movies and sort of break them down Into very broad strokes And then make the accusation that's all they
7: are you mentioned that when you read critical reviews of Michael Bay movies, a lot of the, um, they bring up, you know, just boom, bang, explosion, Ferrari, girl, curbs, violence. And like you said, it's very broad strokes painting over his movies. My question is, movies that are filled with boom, bang, action, explosion, robots, why are those things bad?
5: I, I don't know. I mean, that's always been the case for, uh, for that genre, for action, I think. Uh, and probably, I, I mean, I want to say maybe even until, like, you know, movies like Die Hard came along that added a little bit more character. To the action genre, you know, the, it was always regarded as just like a, you know, dumb two-hour waste of time for you know people with limited IQs, uh-huh. and, and I don't think that's the case with Michael Bay's movies, um, particularly his early ones like you know Bad Boys. I mean, look, I mean, Bad Boys is a twenty-five-year-old franchise, and the new one just came out, and it still made money. Now, I know he didn't direct that one, but it's like obviously, you know, it, it still looks like he directed. It. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's you know obviously they still use the Michael Bay aesthetic in that movie, so it's like right. his influence is still present in those films right. and uh so i think that yeah i mean a movie like like the rock you know, even even Armageddon, which is, you know, way over the top of points, has great character moments, particularly with Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler and everything. So I think that his movies, again, it comes down to distilling them down to their broad strokes, saying, well, all his movies are just explosions and, and whatever. And it's like, first of all, if they were all of that, he, they, they still look really good. Mm-hmm. Second, well, that's not what they are. I mean, Bad Boys has great <laughs> character moments between Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. And that's, you know, a testament to them as actors as well. But, um, I mean, The Rock has a, a story arc, good story Story arc with Nicholas Cage and Sean Connery, so I don't know. I think that um, it's very easy to just to, that whole genre to dismiss and say oh, it's just dumb and you know it's just eye candy and there's nothing. Right. I think that's dismissive and, and kind of wrong thinking
7: okay last question favorite michael bay movie oh
5: man that's a tough one i gotta say the rock i think the rock is still his best for me i okay. mean i've enjoyed his post-rock movies as well really enjoyed six underground uh, in terms of being like his most recent movie i thought that was a lot of fun but i feel like the rock is just everything works I and mean, you know we've quoted that movie constantly i mean uh-huh. You know, it's it's quotable. It's fun. It's uh, but it's got it's got a great story. Great villain. Ed Harris is a great villain because he's he, you. He's he's a villain that you really sympathize with, and he's mm-hmm. you know, he's actually not wrong. What mm-hmm. he, the way he's choosing to handle the situation is very wrong, but his argument is completely sound. So right. you know, you empathize with the villain, and you empathize with you know, without for those who might be listening who haven't seen it, with what it all comes together. You know, it's, it 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 all. You, you really kind of are on Ed Harris. Size in a lot of ways, and so yeah, it's a, that's a great, and Sean Connery, you know, you can't beat that. <laughs> Well, I I hope this brings some attention and some some maybe uh, much-needed reevaluation of Michael Bay's role in Hollywood, I think. I don't think that Team America movie helped him either, that song. uh, I think that may have been another example of... when Team America, yeah. Yeah, because that really didn't help his case.
7: I know that defending Michael Bay isn't really a priority on the minds of most people right now, but, hey, it's fun, Um, and we appreciate your time today.
5: Oh, it was my pleasure. uh, As you know, I'm a fan of uh, Second Chance Cinema, and I love being, uh, love, uh, love being a part of it today awesome all right thank you very much gary thank you
0: so what'd you think? He brought up the good point of the moon buggy jump scene in Armageddon which I forget that people have such a problem with that because it's as far as like movies on a grand scale as Armageddon is for people to zero in on a moon buggy jump sequence on top of an asteroid like I can't wrap my head around the science of like a moon buggy jump to the point where I'm gonna have a problem with the science behind how that's not gonna work when everything else in the movie I'm suspicious my disbelief for you said a key phrase there suspending disbelief
7: which is one of the things that like i hope i never go into a movie trying actively to disbelieve whatever i'm gonna see and yep. my, my response to the critics of the moon buggy jump would first be to look up their reviews of speed and see what they <laughs> thought about that because that's pretty much universally revered as a classic action movie right right and that one quite defied the laws of physics separately. oh yeah
0: The other things I took from it is Jeremy called this a re evaluation of Michael Bay, which I think, like, that's a cool way to phrase it. That Mm -hmm. I think people need to, like, come back to the table and just throw out everything they think of Michael Bay and then come back and be like, and re watch some of these top films that were thrown out there and be like, oh, yeah, this is, as Jeremy perceived it, style over substance. Like, his style is why you go to see Michael Bay films. You don't go to see Michael Bay films to see, like, how we're going to solve COVID-19. Like, you go to Michael Bay films to stop thinking about COVID-19. That's fair.
7: I like the phrase that he used that it's um, become fashionable when it became fashionable to hate Michael Bay. Right on. I feel like that's definitely a source of a lot of his criticism is that herd mentality of, you know, someone, I don't know who the first person to talk about Pearl Harbor negatively was, but I feel like that was the lightning rod where like Jeremy said, it became cool to hate Michael Bay. That happens to athletes, that happens to actors and that happens to just about anybody in the public eye at some point. The Team America thing, from what I remember there's a song and I can't remember when they played in the movie but it's some sort of melancholy moment where I think the character, the main character is trying to it's like his gut check time so there's like this sad montage of him visiting American landmarks and stuff like that and just being really sullen and trying to like what's what's my purpose here and I don't remember if it's the whole song or just one of the lyrics it basically says Pearl Harbor sucked Pearl Harbor sucked talking about the movie I think the line is Pearl Harbor sucked and I miss you cuz he's talking about the girl puppet that he's in love with and he <laughs> has abandoned her or whatever Pearl Harbor sucked and I miss you and then they go into like the bridge I
2: miss you more than Michael Bay Missed the mark When he made Pearl Harbor I miss you more than that movie Missed the point And that's an awful lot, girl And now, now you've gone away And all I'm trying to say Is Pearl Harbor sucked And I miss you Ben Affleck needs acting school He was terrible in that film I need you like Kuba Gooding Needed a bigger part He's way better than Ben Affleck now All I can think about is your smile And that shitty movie too for horror us And I miss you
7: And then they just do this this trashy rundown of like why does michael bake keep getting to make shitty movies and
2: why does michael bake to keep on making movies i guess pearl harbor sucked just a little bit more than i miss.
7: It was a movie about crime-fighting puppets, so it wasn't Mm -hmm. meant to be taken seriously, but that was such a very specific dig that I think people, um, you know, at least for that point in time when that movie was out and popular, kind of jumped on the bandwagon.
0: Michael Bay continues to make movies because Michael Bay movies continue to make money. And he's good at it. So we have three movies left. Yes. Yes. The first one
7: that we're gonna talk about, Pain and Gain.
3: Okay, eyes front neighbors. Now, we'd all like to believe we're safe here in old Cutler States. I know I feel more snug and secure than I've ever. And I feel very welcome, and I want to thank you all for that. Okay? This is a very serious situation. Okay, there are bad guys out there that are waiting for good people like us to drop our guard.
9: Bad guys are everywhere.
3: I should know, okay? I work for the government. I've been to prison, and it sucks. So this first meeting of the Neighborhood Watch, Peter, Dick, and I will demonstrate a few ways we can keep ourselves safe. My pal, Dick. Yeah. Works with me, the government will now hand out your preparedness packs. Right. That means we have to hand out the preparedness packs. Thank yeah, you.
1: Right away. Yes, sir. In our own
3: corner of the American dream, safety requires vigilance. Okay. Look at our chart here. Number one thing of vigilance equals safety. Number two, recognizing... Oh, baby.
5: That's the one.
3: Yeah. Okay. First thing, recognizing a potential attacker.
6: Sorry about that.
3: There it is.
7: Peter? Safety pack. Each family gets a pack. Each pack has pepper spray and a taser. Ladies, these things work. You can zap a guy's
3: balls off with one hit, all right? Okay, the lovely Serena here is gonna be the victim. Who wants to volunteer to be a rapist? Sure. Right here. Can you pick me? Can you pick me? Can you pick me? Can you pick We're me? We're only picking one, guys. This is not a gang rape, okay? You sit down. We'll take Brad. Yes. My favorite neighbor. He picked me. He picked me. He picked me. You pick me. Hi, I'm Brad. You touch her, I'll fuck you up. It was hey, nice meeting you. Dick, there's only a simulation, okay? Calm it down. Well, that's no, what I do out. in this situation, and I'll fuck here him here. up. Paul, yes. yes. now. I, I had to grab her ass. Okay? I was, what I
7: was, do I was you always... remember about it?
0: Well, I remember my personal response to it. I have a problem, just personally, as a viewer, with true life stories. I guess with stylized true life stories. Like, I even, the first time I sat down to watch Hamilton, my first thought as I'm watching these things is, how would Alexander Hamilton feel watching Hamilton the musical? You know, like, for whatever reason, that's the mindset I get in when I go to see uh, fact-based fiction. And And so with Pain and Gain, I couldn't separate myself from how do the victims the real life victims feel seeing a Michael Bay stylized film on their experience that they're probably got PTSD over and everything like that so I only saw the film once every Michael Bay film I think is beautifully shot and I like the performances in it but this one wasn't for me the basic story behind Pain and Gain Danny Lupo manager of the Sun Gym in 1990s Miami decides that there is only one way to achieve his version of the American dream extortion to achieve to achieve his goal, he recruits muscleman Paul, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and Adrian Anthony Mackey as accomplices. After several failed attempts, they abduct rich businessman Victor Kershaw, Tony Shaloub, and convince him to sign over all his assets to them. But when Kershaw makes it out alive, authorities are reluctant to believe his story. Right. The, the
7: phrase American Dream is one that... Like, that was the basis of that movie. If you were going to go into it trying to think, it was going to be like, what is the American dream? What's the price of the American dream? What are you willing to do for the American dream? And the American dream in that movie, of course, being, I think he calls it, like, a McMansion on the lake in Miami (laughs) or something like that. So, and when did the movie come out?
0: The movie came out in 2013.
7: 2013, okay. So, what was great about Pain and Gain was, first of all, the casting was great. Mark Wahlberg was awesome Mark Wahlberg is one of those actors where kind of like Dustin Hoffman like every part of his is a little bit of Mark Wahlberg I feel right like. regardless of who he's playing it's like oh yeah that's Mark Wahlberg it's not Heath Ledger as the joker like Heath Ledger disappears and here's the Joker it's like Mark Wahlberg playing the character with that spice of Mark Wahlberg he was great the rock was fantastic and I think this might have been his like not a not a breakout performance but it was one of those things where like he, he did all kinds of things in this movie he looked badass he was silly he was genuinely comedic um and it was a good he was he got a, i think there was scenes where he displayed like genuine emotion and there was a whole just like spectrum of the rock's acting ability which i you know i think he's awesome i think he's he's like like i feel i feel i'm psyched that we have him in our generation of movie stars
0: yeah um, <clears throat> i think he's our arnold Schwarzenegger. he's like kids nowadays he's the- they're Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. Like, he's the... Him and John Cena, I think, are the action heroes well, of this generation. To, we don't have to
7: talk about John Cena, but um, the, the Rock is okay, yeah. And then um, Anthony Mackie, he was kind of a supporting character, but even his role was like... He, he was very... Both him and the Rock's characters were very conflicted in going along with this conspiracy to to extort this guy and take the money, and it was just a really good dynamic between the three of them. I think that's what the important part was. Was like whenever they were sharing scenes together, it was just it was it was very much that bad boys chemistry, you know, like where they they played off of each other. Each one of them had a specific kind of part in that scene, and even though the movie itself didn't do spectacular, I thought it was enjoyable. I never considered it in terms of what you said. Here's a true story with victims and, you know, relatives of victims who are still alive and and forced to and en- endure its release and, you know, its popularity. And how would that feel in the architecture of a Michael Bay movie? Cuz it's not like it was a heartwarming story told by Ron Howard and Robert Zemeckis. It was it was Michael Bay. Right. And it was I mean, it was textbook Michael Bay. Um the first seen in the movie is Mark Wahlberg doing inverted sit-ups on a bar on a rooftop, like a crossbar on a rooftop. Um, And then I think he hears the cops and starts trying to escape running through, running across like the roof and running on the street with one of those like GoPro cameras that's pointed at his face. So the first scene of that movie basically establishes like, okay, we're in for a classic high octane Michael Bay. You're going to be exhausted. ride. And um, throughout the movie, it's again, it's classic like Michael Bay extremism where you get everything from like chopping up bodies with a chainsaw. Saw that they try to rehe- return to Home Depot because it breaks and still got <laughs> over it to running over Tony Shaloub's character with a car several times because he won't die. And it's a it's a departure from the previous probably decade of Michael Bay's work, which was mostly just like single protagonist main character action movies to where this one had it had layers and maybe the layers were a little sloppy, but I still enjoyed it. Definitely wouldn't call it my favorite. Probably not even, you know, my top five. But it's definitely worth watching, if only to appreciate what a different kind of, based on a true story, it is.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool.
7: So I think that's one that definitely went under the radar for a variety of reasons. But because of the talent that Michael Bay was able to assemble, Tony Shalhoub is great in it, too. The casting was awesome. The cinematography obviously was awesome. And um, I, I was intrigued by, you know what I remember about the true story? There's a scene where they kill a guy and they're trying to dispose of his remains. And if I'm remembering this correctly, they cut him up and then they try to basically barbecue and burn his body but they actually do it on a grill. Like they do it on like a grill in a warehouse. They try to, I don't know what they were like planning to do. Like if they thought burning something meant it vaporized in the thin air, which doesn't happen, but there's a part during that scene where on the screen, it flashes. Remember this is based on a true story. Like, or something like this is still based on a true story. And I thought that was an interesting like device because at that point I had checked out of the true story. I was like, it was just a movie by then. And I'd never seen that before. So points for novelty. There you go. After, pain and gain, we get to the most recent Michael Bay movie that I've seen, which I only saw for the first time two days ago, 13 Hours, the Secret of Benghazi.
8: Fuck. Who the fuck are these guys? What do we got? Brigade we coordinate with. The February 17th martyrs? This ain't them. Shit,
3: we're boxed in. We bailing.
2: Face, this is Roan. This is Roan, come in, over. This is face. Go, Roan. I'm going to jam off Fifth Ring Road. I'm looking got at about eight armed tangos here. Copy
8: that. Sit tight. Sit tight. It's great advice. Face, we ain't got all day.
0: Hey, Roan, they're trying to get Feb 17 to back you up, but we're coming.
8: Hey, Oz, I'm going to jam off Fifth Ring. Die. up? Um, QRF is being alerted. Fuck that. The only quick reaction force I want is my guys. No. Contact 17 QRF. Send them. I want my guys. Tell them they're not allowed
3: to leave the base. Negative, bro. Just hang in there. Maybe I'm not making myself clear. I'm looking at multiple radical insurgents of AKs and a 50-cal technical set to blow my rover all the way back to Zimbabwe. Over. It's not my call, brother.
8: I got a KPV. Here
7: we go. Welcome to Benghazi. So this and one, this is
0: John John Krasinski's post office bulking up, becoming an action hero. Probably got Jack Ryan off of this performance, his Amazon show now.
7: Was supposed to get Captain America. Um, also, did you know that?
0: Yes, that would have worked out too.
7: I wouldn't mind that. There's even a line in this movie where one of the um, one of their Benghazi allies says something like, "All right, Captain America, let's go." And I think that was I don't know if that was a, an official nod to like the that he was up for Captain America and didn't get Captain America or whatever happened in that situation but they definitely referenced Captain America in this movie so the basic story is that he and I think there was like five or six other CIA contractors are flown into Benghazi after the fall of Gaddafi to protect and secure these, CIA operatives who are trying to get intel and trying to help make way for the U.S. ambassador to unite the people of the country and then there's a, a an insurgency or an insurgence from the the rebels in the country and they storm the base basically try to take over the base kill the cia operatives kill the ambassador and basically just don't want the americans there so this movie goes on to describe and show that whole situation but like i was very close to tearing up at the end when spoiler alert not John Krasinski but his best friend who's basically the guy in charge of all the um, CIA contractors dies because two reasons there was another simple scene um, or montage I guess of scenes that Michael Bay did where it's the guys talking via satellite to their families and it's all just very like what I liked about it so much was that it was very it wasn't super poignant it was very like average conversation like I miss you I love you but not these dramatically scripted lines, you know, just like a conversation that you would have with someone that you love. And it humanized these characters in a way that, as soon as it was over, I was like, well, fuck, now one of them's going to die. Maybe more than one of them's going to die. And sure enough, when that happened, it definitely tugged on my heartstrings. The other reason was because, and this is, you know, in the real-life political landscape of this incident, those guys were there sort of thrown into a conflict that really nobody understood. Especially them, nobody, there's a Great, there's a great scene where John Krasinski and the guy, his best friend who ends up dying, are talking and he's like, I'm thinking about my family. What are they gonna say if if I don't make it back? And they have to say, like, well, their dad was far in some faraway country he didn't know about, he didn't know existed, protecting some people he didn't know, fighting for something he didn't care about, you know, and just like basically reinforcing the fact that most of the people over there, I think, had no idea what the point was. And so to see all all the destruction that goes on at the end. And it's this was probably. I don't know if this was one of the goriest Michael Bay movies, but the violence they show was like, it wasn't as um, plentiful, but it was like if Michael Bay did Saving Private Ryan, there would be a few of the scenes where people are getting injured and getting blown up and then they look at their arms and their arms are hanging on swinging and stuff like that. It's very, very stylized, but also very just like, like I think I, I probably winced and turned away a couple times and I don't usually do that with movies. So I think just the whole like, I don't want to call it unfairness, but the whole like maybe pointlessness as it's described by John Krasinski character just really hit me. Like, this is terrible. (laughs) Like this, (laughs) that said, there were certainly some classic Michael Bay tropes in the movie. There was the classic like um, head of the CIA who's uh, you know, like a books and a numbers guy who outranks all the soldiers and he's classically, you know, all the time he's like, you're going to do what I say. You take orders from me. And he's this like nebbishy dude who, has never seen combat, and they end up protecting him, and you know, it was that, you're out of your league here, buddy, we're calling the shots now, archetype thing. In this movie, it made me angrier than, like, in other movies. They do the same thing in Street Fighter, and the dynamic between Jean-Claude Van Damme and the um, head of the UN is not nearly as good. I'll say that, even though you know I love Street Fighter. (laughs) But that dynamic, definitely not as good. What do you remember about this movie?
0: It's funny that I just said in Pain and Gain, I don't like stories based on, or movies based off true stories because I can't separate. Whereas war movies, I can, I guess. As you were talking, I was like, wow, I'm going to be hypocritical as I go into this next movie. Well, one, so this movie is polarizing to a point. I feel like you Benghazi became like a Republican rally cry with the Trump Clinton presidential race because people were saying that Clinton didn't step up to help protect uh, the people there. I don't think they necessarily, other than the CIA saying, giving a stand down order, they don't really get into the politics in the movies. So I feel like both if you're Republican or if you're a Democrat, like you can enjoy this movie, except for the fact that Benghazi is now such a word that means so much more than the city that it's based in that I feel like that kept people from going to see the movie in the theater. And I feel this is another decision that Michael Bay had of saying, I want to make a movie about this, similarly to Pearl Harbor. And only Michael Bay was going to be the one that says, I don't care what the backstory, like what everybody is saying about Benghazi at this moment. I want to do a story about these brave men that fought wave after wave of Libyan soldiers coming to take over the U.S. consulate.
7: So two things based on what you just said. The stand down order was something that I looked into after I read the movie and basically what it was there were both sides the government side i guess refutes that that actually happened they say that there was no stand down order um and there were people that came forward that said that never happened the soldier side says there definitely was a stand down order one of the characters in the movie i think is the one i read an interview with the character in the movie is called uh, tonto based on a real guy because his last name rhymed with tonto i don't remember what it was but <clears throat> he said no there definitely was a stand down order and then so they and investigate over time. And basically what I read happened was that there were just more people that said there weren't, there wasn't a stand down order than there were that said there was a stand down order, but there were still tons of people that said there was a stand down order. It just happened to be edged out by the people that weren't. So of course, you know, I love a good conspiracy theory. I started thinking, well, government people have certainly a lot to lose. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, winks and winks and nudges were like, Hey, can you tell them that there wasn't a stand down order because it's making us Look really bad. And that just further intensified my kind of like um sympathy for these soldiers. It was,
0: right. It, it's like the rock. We're going all the way back to the rock of like, you know, not appreciating the soldiers on the ground and more of the bureaucrats in the office.
7: office. So, like, yeah, you mean like Ed Harris's character, his mm-hmm. Jeremy said this too. His motivations were absolutely pure. His execution was wrong and, and violent and illegal and all you know the bad things, but
0: was like, like Michael Bean and the uh the shop scene when Ed Ra- or Ed Harris is up above and Michael Bean's like I sympathize with you sir like I I lost oh, the same blood in the same mud yeah I was thinking about what the poetry was there but yeah And actually, if you're looking at reviews, this was a really well-reviewed movie for Michael Bay.
7: See, you're right, but here's the tone I got from a lot of the reviews. Do you have some of the reviews in front of you?
0: Soren Anderson for Seattle Times gave it three out of four stars, criticizing the lack of distinctive characters, but ultimately summarizing 13 hours as engrossing and a ground-level depiction of heroism in the midst of the fog of war. Richard Roper, who kind of took over uh, Siskel and Eve uh Helm said similarly praised 13 Hours in his review. He lamented the script, but found the film to be a solid action thriller with well-choreographed battle sequences and strong work from the ensemble cast. For the New York Daily News, she also did not like the script, but applauded the film's focus on the real-life attack summary. War is gritty here, not glamorous. Michael Bay delivers a gripping, harrowing, and heartfelt film. Which, if I was Michael Bay, I'd probably print that (laughs) sentence and be like, "Boom, did it." There or there were at least some other
7: reviews that I read that had the tone of, "Yeah, it was good for Michael Bay." You know, like it was, it was like begrudgingly praised. Like, yeah, this was a good effort for Michael Bay. He did the best he could, and he, you know what, he got lucky and came up with a good movie. There were, and you
0: could take that two ways. You could take that. uh, as begrudgingly or you could take that as i hate michael bay but i have to give this to him
7: and the reason that it that it performed it underperformed at the box office was there were because it, this was probably his most his his worst performing movie i think right financially mm-hmm. at the box office. it came out like in the middle of january or in the beginning of january i think right which is usually a pretty stale time anyway then when the um when the uh presidential election Started ramping up steam. I think I read that DVD sales of this movie like eclipsed like 40 or 50 million dollars or something, which is and like, I think
0: some unmer- Republicans totally got behind it. So, that
7: you know, political leanings aside, um, I think one thing we can both agree on is that Michael Bay, just about every one of his movies, has at least some degree of a love letter to the U.S. military.
0: Oh, yeah, <laughs> he works hand in hand with
7: them, and that's he, yeah, he's not very shy about that. And the military isn't, I would equate what he does now for the military like what top gun kind of did for the navy in you know the 80s like that was basically that basically turned into like a, a navy recruitment film unofficially and when you see movies like 13 hours or even parts of transformers when they're taught when they're when they're on the aircraft carrier or mobilizing the strikes and stuff like that like all the stuff he does with the jets with the aircraft carriers with the soldiers themselves like it's just unbelievably beautiful and you know it's it's very hard to not feel some kind of emotion watching those types of like montages
0: he delivers films under budget and on time and one of the ways he does under budget is he will one spend his own money to make sure that he doesn't go over budget and hopes to get it back you know when the film sells the other thing he does is he will work He's exploited as this director that will do a whole lot of product placement, but that's to make sure that he comes in under budget. And the other thing that he does is him in the military, he does a lot of action and fighting and whatnot. Him and the military work hand in hand where the military will use filming Michael Bay scenes as training exercises. And so therefore, then Michael Bay can shoot the, you know, F-16s flying overhead because they're training and he gets his shot that he wants. Uh, um well, so, so
7: like they do a training exercise and they invite him like, hey, we're going to shoot. We're going to do this. You want to come shoot it?
0: Yeah. And, they, and he'll talk to him, he'll be like, I need jets flying over there, and they'll be like, "All right, we'll train there then, you know? And so, that's why uh, you wanted me to quote this yesterday, but at the end of Dark of the Moons, Final Battle wanted to be more geographic and feature a small group of heroes like Ridley Scott's war drama Black Hawk Down, which is probably top three war movies for me, with a mix of Joe Dante's science fiction action small soldiers and Hasbro's G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. So, Michael Bay, with the military, he's always has them in the back of his mind. He's not going to do anything kind of kitsch.
7: I mean, I think he certainly respects them to, you know, on what On what level, I don't know, but he, it would appear, does everything he possibly can to make them look cool.
0: Yeah. Quote from the set from John Krasinski. He said, one of my favorite things about doing 13 Hours, which was hard at the time, but in retrospect, hilarious, was there would be takes where Michael would walk up to you afterward and go, none of what you just did is in my movie. He wasn't even pissed. It was genuinely flat and blunt. Like, that was awful.
7: (laughs) So you said that 13 Hours was in your top five? Yes. Yes i i want to watch it again because i've only seen it once and i only watched it i watched it kind of under the duress of knowing that we were going to record this podcast and i would have felt inauthentic had i not seen all of the movies we'd be talking about but um i would watch it again in fact i would welcome watching it again because now i know when to close my eyes and go oh that's gross because it was gross and it was visceral and it was upsetting but it was a great movie (laughs) so that brings us to the last one Which is Michael Bay's Straight to Netflix movie that came out, was it last year or was it the beginning of this year?
0: I think it was last year.
7: Okay. Starring Ryan Reynolds, Six Underground.
0: Hit it.
2: Hello, boys.
8: What if I told you, I know what happens when you die? You become a ghost. No more criminal records.
3: No more office parties. Our stupid weddings. The best part of being dead is the freedom. Not policies or politics.
7: No one touched. He's mine. Oh, yeah, hear from you and drive and
3: drive. We
8: answer to no one. and truly evil people.
3: We stuck on the stairwell.
8: Guys, I got a bad idea. Don't have bad ideas. Have good ideas.
11: Was that a bad guy? These people were declared dead.
3: None of us will be remembered. What's about to happen will. You thinks when he raise the bad ones, right?
8: Who the hell are you?
3: We're no one.
11: If they exist, they can be made not.
3: Bobby, they have fighter jets! You see them?
11: Yes! You see that? Yes.
3: Sorry for yelling. Welcome to the world's biggest magnet. Get out of your mind. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I
2: wasn't
3: sure it would work. I mean, I wasn't sure, sure. I had a suspicion, but I, uh. God, oh, this is all so fucking dangerous.
7: Which is a movie about this covert team of spies who they basically just go around ridding the world of evil, right? Yeah. And it was all these like what was it? They only called each other by numbers, I think. Mm-hmm. They didn't One, know each other's. Two, three, One, yeah. two, three, four. They didn't know each other's names. They were all presumed dead. So they were like this ghost team of kind of mercenaries essentially. And it came out and I think I don't know if I psyched myself up properly to watch this movie. I think that might have been what my problem was with it because I saw it and I saw the trailer and I thought, "Oh, this looks cool." Didn't know it was a Michael Bay movie right away, and I feel like when you go see a Michael Bay movie, you need to be prepared. Like you need to be you need to be like well hydrated, you need to be well rested, you need to be like you need to be ready to strap in, you know? Like you need to be right. you need to be in good health. <laughs> like you're going to go to an amusement park, you need to like, you know, you can't have asset like you need to get on those roller coasters in good health and enjoy the ride. So I feel like I wasn't I wasn't adequately prepared or in the right frame of mind to be like, alright, let's buckle in for this Michael Bay movie. And because of that, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I might if I were to watch it a second time. But there were some things that definitely stick out. The fight in the kitchen with the magnet knives, which was, to this day, was, like, I would put that in my top top ten, top five, possibly top three, like, action sequences of all time. I remember specifically there was a part where they needed a retinal scan of one of the bad guys but his head was his head exploded or something so Michael Re- uh, what's his name no Ryan Reynolds picks up the guy's eyeball and is dangling it by the optic nerve over the retinal scanner and he's telling everybody but like it's it keeps swaying back and forth and like rotating and he's telling everybody like Will you stop it I need to get this still which was a very very like I've never seen I remember seeing the eyeball gag in demolition man when Wesley Snipes takes a scalpel and pulls out the warden's eye to do the mm-hmm. same thing but like like just the overall ridiculousness of him holding it like kind of like a pendulum above the, the phone or whatever and telling the other characters to like stop moving because you're you're <laughs> I can't get a good scan while this bloody dripping eyeball is like just front and center in the camera. Like that was very memorable. Um and then I think where where it lost me a bit was just again the it was kind of like the criticism some people had with Thirteen Hours was that there were too many characters who weren't entirely fleshed out. Which I right. think going back to the earlier michael bay films bad boys the rock even armageddon though it had an ensemble cast those characters were in bad boys it was martin lawrence and will smith they were front and center every frame same thing with the rock it was connery and cage in armageddon with the arms ensemble cast i thought that was like a very very effective way to do it the specifics of which i i don't know if i could tell you like why it worked in armageddon but why it didn't work in Six underground but i thought that a lot of the characters kind of just got lost in the Shuffle except for the bad guy, who I don't remember his ethnicity, or his role, or his title, or whatever. I just remember looking at him, the actor, and his facial expressions, meaning like, that guy is scary as hell, and looks like a dick. And I thought that that was, I mean, that's that's probably just as much a credit to the actor, and his parents who gave him those genetics. But <laughs> uh, I, remember,
0: I remember that. The first 20 minutes, I think, are Michael Bay at his Michael bay And I feel like, if you look Tarantino's work, the first 20 minutes of Inglorious Bastards, I think, is some of the best film of cinema history. And I feel like the first 20 minutes of Six Underground is Michael Bay's best work as in and his style.
7: To remind everybody, the first 20 minutes are essentially a car chase through Italy.
0: It's um, just a car chase. It's 20 minutes of a car chase of just character work because you're getting a real good sense of Ryan Reynolds and who he is. My biggest gripe with Six Underground is I you really connect with Dave Franco and you lose him really quick um and i think the two women in the back one being a doctor and the other being an assassin i think are two of michael bay's strongest female characters
7: so the first 20 minutes was just like this high adrenaline car chase through museums through cafes all this stuff that like you shouldn't like basically the exact places you would never expect to see a car Mm -hmm. throws a car in and makes it awesome then at the end out of nowhere after you're exhausted and you're like whoo dave franco gets killed like complete surprise. In a pretty gruesome way too. Um, and at the
0: finish line. Like, right. He literally dies at the finish line. <laughs> like mission mission
7: accomplished and then, oh, psych, you're dead. But the two the two female actors, one was a doctor and one was an assassin. And even though I don't remember much about them as the characters that they played, I remember that during that whole scene there was some fun dialogue and some really great interaction between all the
0: characters in the car. Oh my, the interaction is fantastic. And Michael Bay always does good interaction. He might not do good monologues. He does great interaction, like characters bouncing back and forth with each other. Um, I think the caveat, and it's more to your point of like, why did this work in Armageddon and it didn't work in Six Underground? With Six Underground, they really play with the structure of the script, and it was more like the car chase was an introduction to Michael Bay, his direction, and what kind of movie it was going to be, and then after that, they start really getting into the characters, and I feel like you have to flip it somewhat. You have to care about the characters before you get to the car chase to raise the stakes instead of going to the car chase and then getting to the characters because then everything kind of becomes a one note throughout the whole movie, which I feel like Six Underground kind of suffers from but in the same instance, I would never tell anybody to kind of shy away from the movie considering the fact that this is Michael Bay, it is Michael Bayesius and you gotta sit back and enjoy it. And this did so well in Netflix that his next film is called black five and it's probably a sequel
7: oh nice one of the things that bugged me about this movie and this is just a complete nerd alert ryan reynolds character is a billionaire in the movie who fakes his own death and he later explains and this has to do with the magnet scene in the kitchen he later explains that he want that he made his billions by discovering a type of magnet called neodymium which is just a super strong magnetic material now you know that i build action figures and do a lot of arts and crafts and stuff like that so i i I'm very familiar with neodymium magnets and I was so familiar and I didn't even realize this that I knew that neodymium magnets were discovered by General Motors in 1984 and another Japanese corporation um, Jesus. <laughs> that I can't remember the name of almost simultaneously in 1984 so they were actually discovered independently but simultaneously in the early 80s so when he said I invented neodymium magnets I was like that's not true well, and, all right. did, that's, that's not why I didn't that's not why I didn't love the movie. I just thought that was a that was an interesting little tidbit you should know. So
0: crazy. There are a lot of things that you say that surprise the shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, I mean, that,
7: because, like, I mean, you've been down in my basement, you probably don't notice, but I have, like, probably thousands of those magnets just waiting to be used, because I use them all the time, just sticking on my I-beams in the basement. So, when he said it, because every time I've ever said neodymium to someone, I don't know what the context would be, but they're like, what what are you talking about? So, when they said it in that movie, I felt kind of validated. Was it
0: because it was 1984? Because it wasn't, General Motors didn't discover it, some scientist ad giant. What if Ryan Reynolds was the scientist ad? You know, that's, General Motors, but it's 1984 well, because he's too young?
7: Oh, I don't know, maybe. But my main point was that they were discovered simultaneously and independently by two different entities. Gotcha. So saying, so saying I invented... and Plus, they weren't invented. They were... Or, yeah, discovered. Plus, right. So saying I invented neodymium magnets is like... I feel like it's saying like I invented... I don't know. I can't think of anything.
0: Maybe it meant to the phone app that controls d- magnets. Maybe,
7: <laughs> maybe this um, is the, this is the definition of a nitpick right here is what <laughs> we're talking about. This is the definition of like a fanboy nitpick and I'm done talking about it.
0: <laughs> James Cameron uh, says this. I've studied his films and reverse engineered his shooting style. He loves what I call the big train set, huge f- physical production. Just as I do, it is the most challenging type of filmmaking and he does it quite gorgeously. Steven Spielberg says he has the best eye for multiple levels of pure visual adrenaline. George Lucas says Michael's films are immediately identifiable. Frances McDormand, who's well-respected, she says Michael Bay has a main line to the testosterone glands of the American male, which...
7: She was in Transformers 3, I think.
0: Yep. Yeah. We kind of said this, but one of his screenwriters says, we're aware of how some people think in terms of film history that he's the devil. But it's amazing to have a movie where you can look at five minutes and go that's a Michael Bay movie. To have a style that distinct, like it or hate it, it deserves study. Um, And then Aaron Kruger, who's this screenwriter that I don't trust as far as the screenwriter goes and their work. But Aaron Kruger says he's like this cross between General Patton and Willy Wonka. He's in command of a massive army, all in the effort to create the ultimate everlasting gobstopper.
7: All appropriate. And I think all sort of. So here's a question. Based on everything you've read and all the positive things we've we've dug up that people have said about him, does he really need defended? Are we kidding ourselves saying that people hate Michael Bay?
0: The high art critics hate Michael Bay bay like they begrudgingly gave them 13 hours i feel like the tide can turn and i just in my mind try to come up with an analogy of people controlling tides and what (laughs) and we're pushing the wave in we're like (laughs) we're stirring
7: up the current we're like the moon with lunar gravity like affecting the tides Okay. We're the
0: moon of Michael Bay right now, and just trying to make sure that that tide keeps going in. All right, Six Underground deserved a theatrical release. I think it, uh, it was a huge disservice that Netflix took it. I don't, I don't agree with watching things on your phone and and you know like big action movies in you know what I on think your TV. Really, like,
7: that's a really good point because um, seeing that in a the theater would have been a lot different. Same even with Thirteen Hours. I watched that on my laptop, and even though I loved it, seeing that in a the theater would have been way. more... More affecting that's a good point
0: michael bay deserves the like michael bay is one of those directors that i go i'll go see him if that i have to go see that in a the theater because i know it's going to be weak on my tv i don't have the best sound system oh. you know i didn't see the last two i will say the last two transformers movies four and five are at the bottom of my 13 and 14 list but i didn't see them in the theater i might have changed my mind a little bit if i was hearing you know machines going all around me and stuff like that
7: no i saw them in theater they were still pretty bad so wait do you have a list of all the movies ranked like i do
0: okay there's a lot of like arrows though because i'm not completely sold okay let's hear the list though i'm curious number one is the rock okay number two is armageddon okay three is bad boys 14 is 13 hour or four is 13 hours uh, um five and six are kind of tied at transformers and pearl harbor seven is bad boys two eight is transformers two with nine being six underground uh ten is the island eleven pain and gain oh i forgot transformers three that's somewhere and then the bottom is transformers four and five transformers three i'd probably put i put it above six underground i probably put it above bad boys two so that's probably like the six mark like i said there's arrows everywhere that probably was a whole bunch of gobbly good
7: okay so my top three in reverse order number three let's see number three would be armageddon Number two would be Bad Boys Two. Number one, The Rock, which I think, since since we both agree that The Rock is our favorite Michael Bay movie, that should be the trailer we play while we write a poem about Michael Bay. Sound good? All right. So we're so gonna we'll play.
0: Write a, what? We'll write a poem right now.
7: We're gonna play the trailer for The Rock.
0: Like we reverse engineered our whole show. We're ending yeah. with the <laughs> with maybe a poem.
7: We, maybe one day some critic will say about this show that it's worthy of study. I think that's <laughs> that's one of the highest compliments i think i've ever heard that's i remember i was in college and there was a girl who called me intriguing and i still remember that because i thought that was such a cool compliment i mean i guess what could have couldn't have it might not have been a compliment but i thought that was such a cool word to describe something i was like oh yeah i still remember that so i think worthy of study that's pretty high praise that's what you're taking out out of this i mean that's that that just that just struck me like that was the classic like you might not like them but you have to respect them so Mm -hmm. here's the trailer for the rock we're going to be back with some awesome poems about michael bay following is a state
8: secret gentleman disclose it to any party and you will be subject to prosecution his name is john mason british national incarcerated on alcatraz in 1962 escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain he does not exist Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz Hostage 81 tourists The rock's a tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now that stands between a city and a disaster the power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine that's why you're coming with us is a man who's never seen combat you're a chemical freak <laughs> i'm a chemical super freak actually and another who's been out of action for 30 years show us some the blueprints i can't my blueprint was in my head fortunately some things you'll never forget but don't worry, it'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to the Rock. We got visitors. Sean Connery, are you sure you're ready for listening? I'll do my best. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. The beige one. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? Ed Harris. Fire.
7: classic trailer yep. i remember. In fact, I had the poster for The Rock hung up in my closet in my childhood room. I remember it was like it had this red tint to it, and it was all their faces. And awesome movie. Uh, (laughs) You want to go first? You want me to?
0: You know, we save the best for last. What I
7: think? I think you're worthy of study just as much as anyone.
0: (laughs) I do. That is a good compliment. I will say, like, that's. What do you think about it? That that felt good. My heart warmed up a little bit. So I did. um, Mine was an easy one because Bay, and so I put Otis Redding. song in my head Uh and then so i don't know if i'm gonna get the because i haven't heard the otis Redding song for so long so i don't know if i'm gonna get the tune right and of course i did not warm up the vocal cords but here we go
2: sitting in a film
0: by the bay turning on the smile and off my brain sitting in the dark with my bay and that's b-a-g get it and then this is what I need today. That's, that, all I <laughs> that's all I got. That's
7: all You've opened up the door to a new form of poetry now moving forward because I didn't know we could do song parodies. So, there you go. There we go. It, all right.
0: it was my immediate thought.
7: Here's mine. Mine's a limerick. There once was a man named Bay. About him, the critics would say, his movies are trash, overshadowed by cash. We say, stay out of his way.
0: That's like... So- super intelligent bro like your mind worthy of study worthy of study (laughs) all right before we go, why don't we
7: give out our uh, social media handles, how you can get at us, tell us how idiots, or what idiots we sound like, how much we pontificate, or tell us, like, hey,
0: good point. Or, you know, if you have somebody that you want to recommend, that you're like, this person gets so much hate, and I don't think they deserve it, we no. will we'll do a deep dive if we agree.
7: Not that even this person, this movie, this director, actor, movie scene, I don't know. We're opening the door. And before we go, it's the, um, the email address you can get us at. That is two nd at gmail.com. All one word. So the number two nd chance cinema at gmail.com. So I think that's it. We did it. We did it. What a what a whimper to go out on the Michael. Do P- you well, do you want a quote from Michael Bay of yeah. why
0: he does what Let's end it. Let's let's end it with that. All right. Uh, Michael Bay says, I love it when people get really mean and call me a hack. It's like, don't they see how well these movies are doing? They make an impression around the world. I met this guy in Bali who lives in a hut with a TV and he loved The Rock. That means something, doesn't it? Completely fair. Yeah, he's touching people all around the world, even people that have only a TV in their little hut. Like, that's what he does it for. He does it too, so we forget our lives for a little bit. Completely fair.
7: And with that we will close the book on this michael bay second chance cinema trilogy there will not be a reboot this is it and we thank you for joining us
0: and we hope you're staying safe and staying distant true Thank you for listening to this season of Second Chance Cinema. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or would like to recommend a movie for our next season, you can reach us at 2 ndchancinema at gmail.com. That's 2 cinema at gmail.com. We have a Second Chance Cinema Facebook group. You can find us on Twitter at mcnspro or check us out on Instagram at 2 cinema. To help our little show out, please tell your friends about us. Leave a review wherever you listen and be sure to subscribe and download each episode you listen to as those simple steps makes us much more visible in the universe, which makes these fine secrets cinematic masterpiece is more visible. Isn't that really the whole point? Now go on and have a beautiful day, you wonderful person, you. And remember, whether you identify as a man or a woman, Michael Bay wants you to be beautiful, and that is why he might yell at you, Megan Fox. Just ask Ben Affleck's teeth. Smile and enjoy your day.
2: Well, I clean this with the hands of certain